Hello, dreamers, and welcome to the finale of our series on the life of Brandon Tina. Before we get started, I have a few things to share with you about this show. This is an independent, ad-free, one-woman true crime podcast, which means my puppies and I depend on your help to keep the air conditioning on because Nevada is hell right now. And while there's nothing much you can do about the weather, you can help the show in a number of other ways. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever directories you listen to your shows on. And don't go over there trying to give me two stars because I don't give out gifts. I am so hung up on that review that I got. I actually do give out gifts, usually to patrons, but also if you're nice and if you ask, I might give you a sticker or something. You can also recommend the show in true crime discussion groups. You can follow the podcast on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I do have to apologize for not getting these episodes out in a timely manner. These and the Patreon episodes, both. I don't like to make excuses, but I will. My daughter did visit me for a week in June. Um, I want to say like the middle of the month. But also, I did have something kind of kind of difficult happen to me that I'm dealing with where somebody that I used to trust and used to be very close to actually stole a large sum of money from me over the course of March, April, and May, and it amounted to several thousands of dollars, which I found out about in the middle of June. I'm not going to name names, but I will say this. Feel free to message me or email me. I know myself and I'm nosy as all get out. I don't like vagueness and I would be so freaking curious. And it was actually pretty hurtful. It was a betrayal and it was hard the way that I found out and it just sucked. And for the second half of June, I was pretty sad about it. But anyway, when it does come to excuses, that's a pretty good one. However, I'm here still. I'm doing it. So if you do think that you can go a step further to help out this podcast, you can do so by joining Patreon. If you like listening to me blab on and on and on forever and ever, and you need more content, you can subscribe to our Patreon starting at $1 a month, and that will unlock dozens of episodes that you can't hear anywhere else. If you cannot commit to a subscription, but would still like to help keep the show afloat, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. I did have a nice bump up in Patreon the last couple of weeks, so I'd like to sincerely thank the following individuals, April G, Sydney P, Stormy R, Marie P, Aaron S, Layla B, Toya O, Rory C, Harriet N, Jennifer J, Susan O, Trisha P, Cindy M, and Cindy B for either joining Patreon, raising your pledge, going annual, or contributing through PayPal. The treat jar got refilled yesterday thanks to those of you who support this show. I also need to again provide you with this warning. These episodes may contain graphic details including gun violence, sexual violence, sexual abuse, and strong language and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And of course, sources for this story include the book All She Slash She Wanted by Aphrodite Jones. There's actually a lot of interesting stuff in this episode from the book that I will share with you today, as well as online articles and court documents, all of which will be listed in the show notes. 
All right, I'm sorry for the long introduction. Let's get back to the story. If you haven't listened to the first five parts of the series, you'll want to pause this here and listen to episodes 226 through 231st, and then come back to this and you'll be all caught up. We left off talking about the relationship that developed between Leslie Tisdale and Philip Devine, and how they met at Job Corps, and how it quickly developed into a serious relationship. Because of health issues, Leslie had to leave the program early, but she and Philip promised to see each other. She would go back to Dennis in Iowa when the semester wrapped up, and he would come and spend the holidays with her in Fall City, and that would be a decision that would seal Philip's fate. Philip had a bit of a rough start in life. He was born just after his mom was 30 weeks pregnant with him. He was small, he had severe lung issues, and he was born without one leg, or at least without the bones in one of his legs. His mother had been prescribed a morning sickness pill called DES, and that's the abbreviation for the prescription, but I just didn't feel like working through the pronunciation. And according to the website cancer.gov, DES is a synthetic form of estrogen that was prescribed to pregnant women between 1940 and 1971 to help prevent miscarriages, premature labor, and other related pregnancy complications. The use of DES declined sharply throughout the 1950s when studies showed that the drug was not effective in preventing these problems, though it was continued to be used to stop lactation, emergency contraception, and to treat symptoms related to menopause. In 1971, researchers linked prenatal exposure to DES to a type of cervical cancer in a small group of women. Shortly after the results of the study, the FDA notified healthcare providers across the United States that DES should not be prescribed to pregnant women. The drug continued to be prescribed to pregnant women in Europe until 1978. DES is now known to be an endocrine disrupting chemical, one of the number of substances that interfere with the endocrine system to potentially cause cancer, birth defects, and other developmental abnormalities. And the gentleman in our story, Philip Devine, he was born the same year that the studies linked DES to cervical cancer. His mom had been prescribed the drug, and as a result, he was born with the birth defects. The first months of his life were touch and go. He had the lung capacity of someone who had been the smoker for at least half a century. Eventually, Philip grew older and stronger. He underwent a number of surgical procedures. He was cross-eyed, so some of the muscles in his eyes were worked on in order to keep them from crossing. He also had to have some work done on his one underdeveloped leg. He was missing all of the bones below one of his knees, so he had surgery in order to be outfitted with a prosthesis. From the time that he was born, Philip had to have a tracheotomy to breathe, and he was on drugs to prevent heart failure. Eventually, he grew to no longer need either of those things, but it was very rough on his mother, Phyllis. And yeah, now we have all of these P names. However, fortunately, Phyllis would change her name in a few minutes. She had to deal and cope with all of her son's health problems in the early years of his life. She and her husband, Paul, Philip's dad, they had another son that was five years older than Philip, also named Paul, Paul III. 
And the father, he actually wasn't really all that helpful with raising and caring for the boys or being much of a husband. So Phyllis ended up seeking out ways to help her find some sort of balance and relaxation. So she took up transcendental meditation, which according to tm.org is a meditation technique that allows your active mind to easily settle inward through quieter levels of thought until you experience the most silent and peaceful level of your own awareness. And it's supposed to take no effort, no concentration, no controlling your mind, no monitoring of thoughts, no trying to empty your mind to help benefit stress and anxiety levels, brain function and cardiovascular health. And you don't have to believe in anything, anyone, any religion, any philosophy or any specific lifestyle in order to practice this type of meditation and for it to work. So Philip's mom, who was living in Pasadena, California at the time, she started this meditation and before long, she became fully involved and committed to it. And then she became a certified teacher of the meditation techniques herself. So before long, she was the one who wasn't home very much anymore. She began traveling to teach the meditation. One of the places that she had gone was in Africa. And when she got back to California, she came back with a new name, Aisha which is the Arabic term for she who lives. In the meantime, her relationship with Philip's dad had been on the rocks for a while. And shortly after, Aisha founded her own Transcendental Meditation Center. She and Paul II divorced, and it was ugly. So when Philip was around the age of three and his brother was eight, Aisha went to go see the founder of this meditation, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was a guest speaker at a convention in Beverly Hills. But she did something that maybe at the time, this was around 1974, maybe at that time it might have been okay or it was a little bit more acceptable than it would be now, I don't know. But she ended up leaving her 8-year-old and 3-year-old at home alone with the 8-year-old in charge so that she could go see the Maharishi speak. She didn't think it would take more than a few hours to see him, but it took longer than expected because she had to wait in a long line in order to speak to him directly. And she actually never came home that evening. She called her older son and told him to take a bus to his grandmother's house. And that would be her ex-husband's mother. While Aisha and her in-laws did live in the city of Pasadena, they lived across town from each other. And just like Aisha thought it would be okay for the kids to be left at home alone for several hours at that age, She figured that the bus ride to the grandparents' house wouldn't be a big deal either. But to their grandma and grandpa, they were horrified to see their two young grandsons get to their house by bus all by themselves. She was convinced that their mom had lost all sensibilities. She was already annoyed with all of this meditation mumbo-jumbo, giving herself a new Arabic name, and just overall failing to behave like a responsible adult and parent should be behaving So she ended up calling up her son and told him to get down to the courthouse on the double and file a petition for sole custody. And dreamers, bear with me. There is a reason why we're going through all this background on Philip Devine. But one of the main reasons was when this crime happened, Philip and the other victim outside of Brandon, Lisa, their stories really didn't get told the same way that Brandon's did because of the sensationalism surrounding him being a transgender man. So I want you to know who these other people are in this story because they are just as important 
as Brandon Tina. So I want to share with you how Philip's story evolved and where he came from. Anyway, back to his background. His mother, Aisha, made a bunch of excuses for herself why things were the way that they were. She complained that she had no money. She had to beg for food from local restaurants. She said she didn't have a refrigerator. And she blamed her ex-husband for leaving her penniless. He had already moved on and gotten remarried, had a stable life, a big house. And with that, Aisha did not fight for custody of the kids. She willingly gave their father sole custody, thinking that would be the best thing for them. I mean, the best thing for them is for both parents to do their best to provide for their children. And to me, it kind of sounded like after three years of having to deal with Philip's health issues, Aisha decided to refocus solely on herself and her children just weren't the priority anymore. And I can only judge based on the facts that I am given. And with herself being all into this meditation business, starting her own center, I mean, the purpose first and foremost should have been to provide for her family. But anyway, I told you I was being judgy in the last episode and I'm being judgy again about parenting in several aspects of this case. And while Aisha did not fight to keep her kids, it did sound like that she would have lost custody of them anyway because of neglect and child endangerment, leaving them home alone, instructing them to take the bus to the grandparents. Paul and his parents thought that Aisha's whole meditation thing was a bunch of hooey anyway, and that she was using it as an excuse to avoid having taken care of her kids, particularly Philip and all of his health problems. Philip and his brother Paul were raised by their father and their stepmother, and they visited their grandparents every weekend. But when Philip was about 13, his dad divorced for a second time and moved to be closer to his own sister, Denise, so that she could help him with his boys. Fortunately for Philip and his brother, their aunt Denise was a very successful businesswoman and was able to provide them with a great neighborhood to grow up in, designer clothing, expensive shoes, and they attended the best private schools. She was also able to provide Philip with the best of the best when it came to working through his various disabilities, and she ended up raising Philip to become the strong, independent, smart young man that he became and was still becoming when he came into Leslie Tisdale's life. In the meantime, the mother formerly known as Phyllis, Aisha, had no contact with either of her children for many years. She ended up getting married for a second time also to a guy named Roy McCain. So now her name is officially Aisha McCain. And she became acquainted with Roy through her meditation center. And it was sometime in the early part of the 1980s that Aisha and her new husband moved to Fairfield, Iowa, which is where the Maharishi University is located, where they wanted to attend in order to experience the deepest, most meaningful levels of transcendental meditation. A couple of years after their move to Iowa, Aisha's oldest son, Paul, came to live with her, and she was really excited about that, having him back in her life. At the time, he was in the 10th grade, and while Aisha tried to make the transition and the move as smooth as possible for him, he didn't like it there in Iowa. After he arrived, he got to know a girl that he started to really like, but because he was black and the girl was white, the townspeople didn't really like this interracial relationship like at all. 
and the fact was the only people of color for as far as the eye could see was himself and his mom. I tried to see if these people, I tried looking them up to see if Roy McCain was black also, but I couldn't find any pictures. In fact, when I googled keywords Roy McCain, Aisha, Iowa, Google had no results and suggested that I come up with better keywords. I don't know what the demographics were in the 1980s, but in 2000, it was 95% white. In 2010, it was 90% white, and today it's 77%. So it is becoming a bit more diverse. Paul III lasted in Fairfield for about a year before he decided he had had enough. Not only enough of Iowa, but also enough of his mom being on this perpetual spiritual journey. She was way overboard, and he was just over it. Considering his grandparents convinced him that his mom was a practicing witch, he did come away from staying with her for the year with a bit more respect for her beliefs and her teachings, but there were times when it was just way too far out there for him, and he ended up going back to where they had all started off in California. He settled in Los Angeles, got married, and worked at Radio Shack. When it came to younger brother Philip, he had stayed in Maryland for a bit longer. It was kind of like he was trying to grow up too fast and get out on his own before he was ready, though, when he got to the age of 17. Because, you know, lots of teenagers out there think that they know everything. Philip had a girlfriend who he thought for a minute was pregnant. So he was like, okay, it's time to grow up and be a man, get a job, get an apartment, have this kid, live happily ever after, yada, yada, yada. But the problem was, the job he was working at McDonald's minimum wage at the time was three thirty-five an hour. He had shown his dad this apartment that he found that he was interested in getting. And it was $400 a month. I did math and it would take him 30 hours a week just to get to $400 at that rate. And that's before taxes. Philip just had no idea what living on his own and having a kid involved his dad and his grandfather tried talking some sense into him, but it was no use. Philip was convinced that he could make it on his own. Just before Philip was about to turn 20 in 1991, he had a very enlightening conversation with Aisha on the phone. They talked one evening and it got pretty deep. And as it turned out, many of the things that his dad and his grandparents had told him about her weren't true. Aisha told Philip how much she loved him and how much she missed him. And she often contemplated just taking him and his brother back to be with her. But she figured that the both of them would eventually grow up and form their own opinions of her and decide for themselves if they really wanted to get to know her. She told Philip it was a long time coming, but she knew that he would get there. And it wasn't very long after the two of them cleared the air that Philip's girlfriend broke up with him, he was struggling to hold down a steady job, and he was feeling as if he just needed a change of scenery. Since he had spoken to his mom, and she was able to dispel many of the things that he long held to be true about her, things that were told to him by his father and his grandparents, kind of brainwashing him, he decided to see if he could come and live with her in Fairfield, Iowa. And when he asked, she was like, yes, more than happy to have him come and stay with her. 
So Philip said goodbye to Marilyn, and for the first time in many years, he was reunited with his mother. And she allowed him the freedom and the space to decide for himself what he wanted to do and what direction he wanted to go. So for the time being, he found a job at a local fast food restaurant. And while he did not enroll in college, he did do lots of reading and studying of religious and spiritual materials. One of his favorite things to do was cooking and experimenting with new recipes. And Philip had even contemplated going to culinary art school and perhaps one day becoming a restaurateur himself. But after about a year of living in Fairfield with his mom, Philip started to grow restless and bored. And that's when he found and applied for Job Corps. By the fall of 1993, Philip was about to turn 22 years old that October, and he was almost finished with the program at Job Corps when he suffered an injury to his good leg while he was playing football with some friends. He ended up going home to Fairfield with his mom while he recovered from this injury. His leg was broken, and he already had the one prosthetic leg, and now his good leg needed surgery and required five metal pins to fix it back up again. During his recovery, his mom took him on a spiritual pilgrimage to some religious holy place in the city of Golden, Colorado, where people had reportedly seen visions of the Virgin Mary. He told his mom that he himself had seen the Virgin Mary in the past and had a strong connection to Colorado, which is why he had hopes of moving there one day. The place they visited is the Mother Cabrini Shrine, and it's located there at the top of a lengthy staircase where there's a statue of Jesus at the top. Philip made the climb up the stairs with his bum leg and broken leg. He and his mother stood next to one another by the statue while they asked a passerby to snap a photo of them. And this would be the last picture Philip's mother would take of him and with him. Philip Devine arrived by bus in the city of Omaha, Nebraska on December 14, 1993. And that happened to be the same day that Lana Tisdell had written that check that her father had given her to get her hair done in order to use to bail Brandon out of jail. Leslie went from Fall City to Oklahoma to pick Philip up, so Brandon and Lisa tagged along with her to go get him. However, problems arose between Leslie and Philip as soon as they all got back to the Tisdale house. Philip came to find out that Leslie had a guy, a roommate named Lenny Landrum, living there, and Philip was not keen on that at all and wanted him out of his girlfriend's house. Leslie tried explaining that there was nothing going on, Lenny was a friend, nothing more, but Philip had completely shut down this conversation. He refused to listen to anything Leslie had to say about this guy. It was a different side of Philip that Leslie hadn't seen before. In fact, Philip was ready to turn right back around and go home to his mom's place for the holidays. But he had just gotten there, so he opted to stay at least for the night. And even though things were tense, Leslie and Philip did end up sleeping together for the first time that night that he arrived, which helped ease the friction a lot. But Leslie, she still remained bothered by Philip's attitude and jealousy. And this would ultimately be the reason why Philip Devine ended up at that farmhouse out in the city of Humboldt. 
While they were apart, Philip being in Iowa and Leslie being in Nebraska, they exchanged letters. And in his, Philip expressed his love for Leslie, but did explain that he was very guarded with his feelings and anything that has to do with matters of the heart. He was fiercely protective of himself and did not want his heart broken and his walls were not going to come down that easily, if at all. He also talked about having a family in some of those letters, raising Leslie's daughter with her. It was a dream of his to be a father, and he was looking forward to a future with Leslie and her daughter. However, Leslie was still a bit put off by Philip being so angry and jealous, and he was more possessive and controlling than she had ever realized when they were together back at Job Corps. She told him that she had female friends, but she also had male friends, and Philip hadn't taken issue with it back when they were attending the classes together, but now that they were in Fall City, it was like, yeah, he was taking a huge issue with her male friends, and Leslie could see right away that there was nothing that she could say or do that was going to make anything any better. There was no way Philip was going to be okay with Leslie hanging out with other guys, much less having them live with her. So clearly, with all the sleeping around that everybody was doing that we've discussed up to this point throughout the series, this was not going to be something that Philip would ever be able to accept. I did find it interesting how the relationship between Philip and Leslie became so intense so quickly. And then at the first signs of trouble, the both of them were just ready to jump ship. Things in this case happened so quickly both ways breakups and get togethers so leslie told philip she wanted to end their relationship she said that she loved him she loved the short time that they had together which amounted to maybe less than two months and even a couple of weeks that they were apart in separate states but the visions of the future that they had together were over as far as she was concerned because she could not continually be accused of sleeping with every guy in town for the rest of her life. Philip did try to patch things up with Leslie. He said that he was sorry, that he loved and cared for her. He just wasn't interested in playing games. This was very serious to him. So Leslie went ahead and pulled back on the breakup talk and they decided to give it a go. But within days, Philip was back to accusing Leslie of messing around on him again and it was to a point where Leslie could barely be in his presence. She was that annoyed and fed up with him. It was the holidays. She intended to have as many of her friends and family over as much as possible throughout the rest of the year, and she was not going to let Philip spoil her fun. By December 24th, Leslie was way over it, and she was over him. She had gone to hell and back with a particularly abusive boyfriend in the past who used to beat her up, he would spit in her face, he was never faithful to her, and he gave her a sexually transmitted infection. When it came to Leslie's life, she had a rough go of it, aside from abusive boyfriends. Growing up, she was constantly in trouble. She was angry most of the time, she was in and out of juvenile detention and group homes. She had made at least one attempt at taking her own life, but at the same time, she mostly refused to take responsibility for her own actions. She blamed her parents, their issues, the abuse that her mother suffered at the hands of her father, and she quickly grew to despise the both of them. In fact, the reason why she began dating black men was an act of retaliation against her mother and father. 
She knew that they would hate it, and that was good enough for her. When her father found out that she was pregnant and that the father was black, he completely cut off all contact and communication with her. And this is Leland. Remember, we talked about him in the last episode. This is the family of L people. Leland only started speaking to her once again when her mother forced her to give the baby up to a relative. And Leslie carried that anger, hatred, and resentment against both of her parents pretty much permanently. According to Leslie, she believed that she had grown so accustomed to being in toxic and abusive relationships that she had a hard time accepting how nice Philip Devine had been to her to a point where she was trying to sabotage her own relationship, it seemed like. When they would fight, she tried to get him to start punching her or slapping her, but he refused to, and she just didn't get it. And she wasn't able to get to that breaking point that she normally got to when her relationships would just explode. She admitted that Philip was nice and sweet and loving, and she just wasn't used to it, which is why she thinks she reacted the way she did when she finally did see a side of Philip that she could fight with. Philip realized that he wasn't going to get anywhere with Leslie when it came to getting Lenny out of her house, so he figured if he can't beat him, join him. He and Lenny started talking, and they became friends. Now, apparently... They soon both figured out that they each belonged to rival gangs. And I don't even want to get all that much into it, but Lenny was supposedly a member of the Crips, and Philip said that he used to be a member of the Bloods, but they didn't let that get in the way. There weren't that many black people in Falls City, so Lenny kind of understood Philip feeling sort of like a fish out of water. Lenny was half black, so he had a slightly easier time than Philip. And he had become friends with the Tisdale family, mostly because they had been so much more accepting of him. He hung out in Leslie and Lana's circle of friends pretty often, so everybody basically knew him and they were okay with him. That week leading up to Christmas Eve, Philip ended up hanging out with Lenny along with John Lauder and Tom Nissen. They'd all go out drinking, hanging out, messing around, having a good time, And while both Tom and John at times could be a couple of asshats, everything was all right between the four of them. Lenny and Philip being black wasn't an issue with them. In fact, the ones that were being ridiculed and targeted around town at the time were Lana Tisdale and Lisa Lambert. And all that stemmed from the rumors going around because of their individual relationships with Brandon and the fact that the whole town knew that Brandon's gender at sign at birth was female and he was identifying as male. Everywhere Lana and Lisa went, they were bullied and mocked. People would call them names. And so while they both struggled to come to terms with what each of them had in their relationships with Brandon and how they felt about him, they were the butt of everybody's jokes. And they both, in their own ways, were still trying to believe that the person that they had each fallen for was a man regardless of what everybody else was saying. Lisa Lambert did not make any efforts to hide her relationship with Brandon. She didn't lie to anyone about it, nor was she willing to kick Brandon out of her life. Yes, everything hurt a lot. She struggled with it. She was angry. It was all-consuming. But Lisa loved Brandon, 
and she would never turn her back on him. She also developed some of the same fears for Brandon's safety that his mother Joanne had, that he was going to be hurt or someone was going to do something bad to him because he had pissed so many people off with his questionable gender identity and his thieving ways. On Christmas Eve, Tom Nissen had guests over at his and Candy's house in Fall City. The place was decorated for the holidays. They played board games and card games and drinking games. The snow was falling and everybody was having just about as perfect of a good time as any, hanging out together in the tiny but warm and cozy little house. So it sounds like Candy, if you remember, she's Tom's wife and was a massive slob, the slobbiest housekeeper ever. And she may have decided, hey, you know, it's not that difficult to pick up a mop and a scrub brush in order to make the place much more welcoming than it had been when Tom first got out of jail and found their home in such horrendous conditions that they damn near lost their kids to Child Protective Services. So I'm going to quickly run down the people who are there at the party and remind you of their place in the story real quick, because I know this is a long story. There's a lot of people and I always need reminders too when I'm listening to podcasts with a bunch of characters. So at the party, the Christmas Eve party were Tom and Candy. It was their house. And remember they were married at least on paper. So they were the ones hosting Christmas Eve at their house. Leslie Tisdell and Philip Devine were there together. Lana Tisdell and Brandon Tina were there also together. And John Lauder and his girlfriend, Rhonda McKenzie, were also there. Also present was Tom's brother, Scott, along with an assortment of children belonging to various members of the Nissen and Lauder families. The only main character in the story that was not there that night was Lisa Lambert. Remember, she's living in that farmhouse on the outskirts of Humboldt, which is about 30 minutes west of Falls City. As the evening at Tom Nissen's house wore on, more and more alcohol was being consumed. There were empty containers overflowing out of the trash can and scattered all around the house, and the place was becoming more and more of a mess. The more people were drinking and acting up, and things started to get a little bit out of hand. They had actually started drinking Christmas Eve morning. So yeah, by that night, everybody was smashed and stupid. Lana was dressed up and done up really nicely, perfectly, and she looked beautiful. And she was there with Brandon, who was much more casually dressed. He was like one of the guys there at this party, this Christmas Eve party. Remember, I talked at length in the last part of the series about how much John Lauder had long wanted to be with Lana, but because of all the times that he had gone to jail, she was unwilling to put up with it or wait for him to figure out his life. And because John carried that torch for Lana, I can't imagine that he was enjoying seeing her there being all lovey and affectionate with Brandon. In fact, pretty much everybody was sick and tired of the two of them and their PDA all over each other all the time. As it got later and later into the evening and the drinking continued, John Lauder was becoming more and more belligerent and obnoxious. And his main target was his own girlfriend, Rhonda. Eventually, sometime after midnight, John was becoming less and less funny and more and more rude and just downright mean. And soon he began picking on Brandon, saying things like everybody knows that he's a girl, telling Brandon that he wants to have sex with him, 
that the more he drinks, the hornier he gets and he needed to get laid. Just really nice things to say with a girl that you're madly in love with and can never have and your own girlfriend right there in the room. And Brandon, listening to all of this crap that John was spewing, was like, yeah, no, this is not happening. Before long, Tom Nissen started in on Brandon, joining John with the teasing and trying several times to force Brandon to admit the truth about his gender. Things were escalating, so finally Tom told Brandon that, you know what, you're no longer welcome to stay at this house. Remember, Brandon and Lana were staying there at Tom's because Lana's mom had it out with Brandon over the same issues, Brandon's gender. Tom said that they could crash at his place until things blew over with her mother, but no more. He told Brandon he is no longer welcome, and he wanted him gone by sunrise, and just to make sure that that would happen, Tom said that he was going to take Brandon back to the county jail, telling him that Lana wanted her bail money back and she wanted to see him back in jail too. And if you recall, Tom was the one who actually signed the paperwork for Lana to get Brandon out. She was the one who had supplied the money with that check from her dad. Brandon told Tom that Lana would never do that. She would never see him back in jail. And he also told Tom that he didn't have the power or the right to revoke his bail just because he helped post it that he's not the police, he's not law enforcement, he's not the city attorney's office, he has no control over it. Things quickly escalated into a loud verbal argument between Tom and Brandon. They were up in each other's face, pointing fingers. Brandon at one point shoved Tom into a wall just to get him and his finger to back off. Both of them were extremely intoxicated. The fight became more physical as they moved it into the hallway Tom was backing Brandon into the bathroom. Brandon shoved Tom once again, but this time he lost his balance and fell. Tom got back up and answered back by punching Brandon in the face, knocking him onto the ground as well. And by this time, it was well past midnight. Lana and Leslie had already left to go open gifts with their mother at their place. So there was nobody there that Brandon was really close to that could help him or intervene. John joined Tom and Brandon in the bathroom. He shut the door and locked it behind him after he stepped in. This confrontation in the bathroom was not the first one that Brandon had had with others at this Christmas Eve party who were trying to talk him into admitting that he was transgender. Tom's brother Scott tried speaking to Brandon privately, thinking that if Brandon would just admit to the truth, it would calm the situation down. Another guy who had dropped in, some overgrown white supremacist named Eddie Schickler, actually threatened to kill Brandon if he didn't reveal the truth. But for the most part, Brandon was able to sort of brush it aside, tried laughing at all of it, playing it off like it was just a big joke or they didn't get it or everybody was just kidding. Eventually, it came down to one thing. Somebody needed to see Brandon's penis. And now that he had found himself trapped in the bathroom with John and Tom, Brandon was out of options, and he was going to have to. He began unbuttoning his jeans, and he sort of opened the fly a little bit, and they could see that there was something bulging in his pants. Brandon told them to go ahead and feel it through his clothing, clothing that all belonged to Tom because Brandon had nothing with him from the day that he was bailed out of jail, which was only 10 days earlier. So Tom reached for Brandon's crotch, but all that bulge was, was the end of the belt that Brandon had on, and the end of it was tucked into the front of his pants. 
Brandon tried explaining that he had the belt there because he was embarrassed about the condition that the gender reassignment surgery that he had had left him in and that his penis was kind of small and he was scarred. Tom was just fed up over Brandon's BS and he scoffed and he turned around and stormed out of the bathroom. John also walked out. And just a couple days earlier, Lana had confided in Tom that she and Brandon had had sex and she did say that his penis was small, but she felt it. Lana had also told John that she had seen Brandon use the bathroom standing up as well as some of the details about the gender reassignment surgery that Brandon said that he had had. Tom had also been with Brandon when they had gone to use the bathroom at a bar once and saw him standing up and using a urinal. So now the both of them, Tom and John, were really confused and didn't know what to make of all of this. As if any of this is any of their damn business. These people, right? But anyway, they knew Brandon always wore a belt that was sort of like a tan color, so they started to think that he used the end of the belt to tuck it in his pants to make his penis appear bulgier. Tom became so mad that he decided to seriously try and have Brandon thrown back in jail. He called and spoke to one of the officers on duty at the time to see if he could get a refund on the bail money and have it revoked, but he was told that that wasn't how things worked and he would not be able to do anything about it, especially on Christmas Day. And even if it wasn't a holiday, there was just no way. This angered Tom even more, and he tried explaining that Lana wasn't supposed to have taken that money from her dad, and he was trying to help her get it because her dad was going to press charges that she used the check that he had given her for bail instead of what it was intended for, which was for her hair. At every turn that night, every minute that passed, Tom was becoming more and more disgusted and angry at Brandon that it got to a point where he couldn't even stand being in the same space as him. But once he found out that he wasn't going to be able to have Brandon's bail revoked and he wasn't going to be able to get Lana her money back, he decided that he needed to figure out another way to rectify things. And his buddy John, he was on board with that. They both were going to have to deal with Brandon whichever way that they could. They went back into the bathroom. Soon, whatever guests were left there heard a thud. It was the sound of Brandon being attacked and falling to the floor. The two of them took Brandon outside to the car and forced him into the back seat. Tom held Brandon down by his arms while John forcibly removed Brandon's pants and underwear. When the two of them saw the truth for themselves, they called Brandon a lying bitch. A couple of hours into Christmas Day, this is December 25th, 1993, Brandon was driven to a nearby hotel where he went in to use a payphone so he could try to get a hold of anyone at Lisa Lambert's farmhouse to come and pick him up. But after Tom came back out of the sundry store inside the lobby, he demanded that Brandon get off the phone. He said he had company that he was expecting back at his house, so they were all just going to have to go over there for now. So now Tom Nissen was not letting Brandon leave. Before going back to Tom's, they dropped in to see Linda. And I've never really actually been all that clear about Lana, Leslie, and Linda's living arrangements, but it sounds like, at least for the holidays, they were together a lot or in the same home. But anyway, Tom wanted to tell Linda that he had confirmed Brandon's true gender, which caused Linda to become so irate, she told Tom that she never wanted Brandon anywhere near her home, she never wanted him around, she never wanted to see him again, and she could not care less what Brandon does or where he goes, so long as he never sets foot inside her home or near her family ever again. 
As for Lana, she was holed up downstairs in the bathroom where she pretty much spent most of her time since she met Brandon and the rumors began going around town about the two of them being lesbians or Brandon really being a girl. And she could hear the conversation that her mother was having with Tom. And she could tell that her mom was pretty serious. So she was going to just have to sneak around if she wanted to hang out with Brandon anymore, which she very much intended to do. When the three of them, Tom, John, and Brandon, arrived back at Tom's house, most of the people from the Christmas Eve gathering were gone except for Tom's wife and John's girlfriend, Candy and Rhonda, and they had already gone to bed. So Tom and John decided to continue their conversation and to continue their assault on Brandon. The two of them forced Brandon back into the bathroom, and what happened next, we actually have an audio tape recording from Brandon himself. And I would say that is likely this is the only recording that exists of Brandon's own voice. I want to play it for you. Some parts, especially the parts where Brandon is doing the talking, are difficult to hear. Before I play it, let me remind you, back in part one, I told you that one of the worst people in the story was Sheriff Charles Lux. What I stated was, I'll just put it out there right now that Sheriff Charles Lux, we are going to find out is one of the most garbage human beings in this entire story, if not more so because he is a man who at the time held the badge that he received when he swore to protect the community and uphold the law. I even go so far as to say that because he had a badge, that in and of itself makes him worse than anybody else in this entire story. This is a recording of the sheriff speaking to Brandon about this attack. I'll try to adjust the audio so you can hear it a little bit more clearly and evenly. And then I will go over the interview line by line. There is a couple of unintelligible words. And I also have court documents that will reference this audio recording, which I will go through that may clear up some of the questionable portions of the audio. I will have to warn you, though, this recording, Sheriff Lux, Sheriff Piece of Shit. Remember, he is interviewing a 21-year-old Brandon Tina who had just been beaten and raped by John Lauder and Tom Nissen. The content, the questions being asked, the things being said by Sheriff Lux are absolutely disgusting, totally inappropriate, and this man had no business being anywhere near a sexual assault victim. I don't like Tom Nissen or John Lauder. I don't like a lot of people in this story. But there is this special kind of disdain that I have many of us will have for a man like Sheriff Charles Lux. So consider yourself warned. This is an audio recording that is going to make you cringe. It's a little more than six and a half minutes long and took place later on the same day that Brandon was attacked by John and Tom. Christmas Day, 1993. Tom held your arms. Which way was he standing? Beside you, behind you, or what? How'd he hold you? And then he took and Tom, uh, John and then your pants, right? He pulled your pants down how far? Past your knees. How far did he pull your underpants down? Okay. What did you have in your underpants? Nothing in your underpants? Well, you talking about earlier, I had socks. No, didn't. You didn't have socks. You run around once in a while with a sock and your pants make you look like a boy? Yeah. All right, so after he pulled your pants down, I seen you as a girl, what did he do? Did he fonder you any? Yeah. He didn't fonder you any, huh? 
Doesn't that kind of amaze you? After he pulled your pants down, you've been wanting to take you to bed, and you told him no, that he was a boy and he couldn't do that. Doesn't that kind of get your attention somehow that he would have put his hands in your pants and play with you a little bit? Huh? I don't I can't believe that if he pulled your pants down and you're a female, that he didn't stick his hands in you. Or your finger in you. I can't believe he didn't. Um, that name is John, I need to talk to you. It's okay, I walk in the bathroom. Walk in the bathroom, John turned around and held the door and Tom hit me once. I found the tub. The black guy hit me again. I'm falling for him, kicked me in the ribs. I'm home time, stuck in my bag. And he picked up my coat, carried me out to the car. Oh my god, I got a back seat. This was really something that happened. Cut the I did that with him. I did clean. Tom told me he did. He needed to do it and make it hard. And he goes, Grandpa said that. He said he needed to beat the shit out of him and have it happen anyway. Have what happened? So when they got ready to poke you, how was your position in the back seat? On my back. He was on your back. What did he try to start in the first half? Yeah. I was on it. He tried sitting your butt down, and you say you never had sex before, is that correct? Right. And which one tried doing this first? Tom. And Tom couldn't get it in you? Huh? He said he couldn't get you. He said he couldn't get it in. Well, I know it hurt. I don't know what Tom was doing. Where are you going? The person was Tom. Is that that? Then Tom got out, and what did he do? Then what happened? And then when John got the back seat, what did he do? He did everything that Tom did. Alright. After he got his pants down, he got spread of you, or had you spread out, and he got a spread of you then, then what happened? Well, how did, let's back up here for a second. First of all, you didn't say anything about him getting it up. Did he have a heart on when he got back there, or what? I don't know. I didn't look. Did he take a little time working it up or what? Did you work it up for him? No, I didn't. You didn't work it up for him? No. Then do you think he had it worked up on his own or what? I guess not. I don't know. And you've never had any sex before? No. How old are you? 21. And if you're 21, you think you'd have, you'd have trouble getting in? Yeah. 
You're starting to complain against me? Yeah. Will you testify court against me? Why do you run around with girls instead of guys being you're a girl yourself? Why do you make girls think you're a guy? I don't know if I have the idea. You go around kissing other girls? What? I don't know about you. The ones, the girls that don't know about you think you're a guy. Do you kiss them? Because I'm trying to get some answers so I know exactly what's going on. Now, you want to answer that question for me or not? I have to. Huh? I have to. The only thing is, if it goes to court, that answer's going, that question's going to come up in court, and I'm going to want an answer for it before it goes to court. See what I'm saying? You're what? I have a sexual identity crisis. Okay, so now I'm going to read you a transcript of the recording. Some parts of Brandon's statement are not included in this recording. I'm not sure why, if it's been edited or because of the content. But what I will do is include the other parts after I go over the transcript of this video, some of the parts that were omitted that I found in Aphrodite Jones's book, because I think you need to hear all of it. Sheriff Lux started off. Tom held your arms. Which way was he standing? Beside you, behind you, or what? Behind me. And how did he hold you? My arms up. And then he took... And Tom or John undone your pants, right? He pulled your pants down how far? Past my knees. Past your knees. How far did he pull your underpants down? Past my knees. And what did you have in your underpants? Nothing in your underpants? Are you talking about earlier when I had a sock, but not when he pulled my pants down? I didn't. You didn't have a sock? Do you run around once in a while with a sock in your pants to make you look like a boy? Yeah. All right, so after he pulled your pants down and seeing you was a girl, what did he do? Did he fondle you, any? No. He didn't fondle you, huh? Didn't that kind of amaze you? After he pulled your pants down and been wanting to take you to bed, and you told him no, that you was a boy and you couldn't do that, doesn't that kind of get your attention somehow, that he would have put his hands in your pants and play with you a little bit, huh? I don't know what he did. I can't believe that if he pulled your pants down and you are a female, that he didn't stick his hand in your or his finger in you. Well, he didn't. I can't believe that he didn't. Tom looked at me and he said, John and I need to talk to you. I said, okay. We walked into the bathroom and John turned around and held the door and Tom hit me once and I fell into the tub. I stood back and he hit me again. This time I fell on the floor. He kicked me in the ribs. I don't know how many times. He stepped on my back. Then he picked me up by my coat and carried me out to the car by my coat. I got in the back seat. That's when I knew something was going to happen. I asked them why. I did beg them. I did plead. Tom told me, Are you going to make this easy? Or are you going to make this hard? And then he goes, In fact, he said, Either you can have the shit beat out of you and have it happen anyway. Have what happen? 
when he raped me. So, when they're ready to poke you, how was you positioned in the back seat? On my back. You was on your back? Where did they try to... And there's a word that's unintelligible. Where did they try to... It in at first. We can assume that Sheriff Lux here is asking about where the penetration occurred first or the attempted penetration. Brandon replied, my vagina. They tried sticking it in your vagina and you say you never had sex before. Is that correct? Right. And which one tried doing this first? Tom. And Tom couldn't get it in you, huh? He said he couldn't, but it still hurt. All right. He said he couldn't get you. He said he couldn't get it in, but all I know is it hurt. So I really couldn't tell the difference. Whatever he was doing, it hurt. The first one was Tom. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Then Tom got out and what did he do? He got in the passenger seat in the front. Then what happened? Then John got out of the driver's seat, walked around to the passenger side, and got in the back seat. And then when John got in the back seat, what did he do? He did everything that Tom did. All right, after he got his pants down, he got a spread of you, or he had you spread out, and he got a spread of you, and then what happened? When he finished, he got out of the car, and he got back in the driver's door. Well, how did... Let's back up here for a second. First of all, you did say anything about him getting it up. Did he have a heart on when he got back there or what? I don't know. I didn't look. You didn't look. Did he take a little time working it up or what? Did you work it for him? No, I didn't. You didn't work it up for him? No. Do you think he had to work it up on his own or what? I guess so. I don't know. And you've never had sex before? No. How old are you? 21. And if you're 21... You think he'd have any trouble getting it in? And Dreamers, while many of the sheriff's questions are stupid, this is one of the stupidest ones. As if age has anything at all to do with the attacker's ability to have an erection in order to rape somebody. To me, it sounds like the simple answer would be both Tom and John are inadequate men with limp dicks. Brandon replied, Tom said, nobody will hear about this, right? I said, yeah. Tom said, get out of the car, walk to the back, and that's when he badly attacked me again. He never hit me in the face this time or in the head. He just hit me either in the gut or in the back. I think he hit me about three times, and the rest of the time he used his knee in my gut. Tom goes, we're done, get in the car. So I had to sit in the front seat with them. And Tom goes, we're still friends? Then what did you say? I said, yeah. Then we went back to Fall City and went to Tom's house. Did they do it one time to you and then the other guy do it one time and then quit? Or did the one guy do it and then the other guy do it and then the other guy came back and do it and then the other guy came back and do it again? They each did it once. They each did it once. Do you want to file charges against these guys? Yes. Do you want to sign a complaint against them? Yes. Will you testify in court against them? Yes, sir. Why do you run around with girls instead of guys, being you're a girl yourself? Why do you make girls think you're a guy? I don't have the slightest idea. You don't have the slightest idea. You go around kissing other girls? 
the ones that I know that know about me. The ones, the first that don't know about you think you're a guy, do you kiss them? What does that have to do with what happened last night? Because I'm trying to get answers so I know exactly what's going on. Now, do you want to answer that question for me or not? I don't see why I have to. Huh? I don't see why I have to. The only thing is if this goes to court, that answer, that question is going to come up in court and I'm going to want to answer it before it goes to court. See what I'm saying? I have a sexual identity crisis. You what? I have a sexual identity crisis. You want to explain that? I don't know if I can even talk about it. The audio recording cuts off there and whatever else was said after Brandon stated that he didn't know if he could even talk about it is unknown. The YouTube video indicates that the remainder of this interview was erased. Now, there are more details that I found in Aphrodite Jones's book from this interview that were not on the recording. So I'm going to pull all those quotes now and share them with you. It's not much longer. Sheriff Lux was doing most of the talking, but there was a younger rookie officer named Tom Olberding. He was in the room too, mostly to listen, but he occasionally asked some questions a little bit more tactfully than the sheriff had. But the statements that Brandon made that were audio recorded, Sheriff Lux was talking to Brandon alone, and he opted to record that portion of the conversation himself. So this is some additional parts of that conversation that I found in the book. Sheriff Lux stated, let's put it real bluntly what they did to you. We're here to investigate this, and the only way we can investigate this is if you tell us exactly what happened. He penetrated me without my permission. He penetrated you. Which one penetrated you first? Tom Nissen. Tom Nissen, did he penetrate you in the front or the back? In the back first, at first. In the back first? When, uh, which one of these guys jerked your pants down to find out if you were a boy or a girl? John. Okay, he did that before all this other stuff took place? I thought you said John was holding the door and Tom was the one beating on you. He did. The next parts we already went over in the audio recording with Brandon's pants being pulled down past his knees and the sock in his pants that he runs around with the sock to look like a boy. How come you forgot to tell us all about this? Well, I didn't see it as important. Well, it's important when we're doing an investigation. We asked you to start at the beginning. You skipped half of it. Now we don't even know if we're in the middle of daylight or dark. We don't know what's up or down. All right, so after he pulled your pants down and seen you were a girl, what did he do? Did he fondle you any? And we already went over that portion of the audio. Lux picked back up after the whole thing about the fondling and stated, Well, it doesn't make any difference. Now you were all half-ass drunk and knowing these guys, it wouldn't make a difference to John what he did in front of everybody else. He would think it was funny, huh? I can't believe that he would pull down your pants and you're a female, that he didn't stick his hand in you or his finger in you. Well, he didn't. I can't believe he didn't. Who pulled your pants back up? I did. So then we get to the part that we already went over where Brandon said whatever Tom was doing was hurting him. How did you have your legs positioned when he was trying to do that? He had them positioned on each side and he was positioned between my legs. You had your legs, your feet up and around his back, or did you just have them off to the sides or what? I had one foot on the floor and the other on the seat. 
Okay, so after he couldn't stick it in your vagina, he stuck it in your buttocks, is that right? Yes, sir. How long did he do that? Long enough. I didn't time it. I mean, did he? Did it seem like a lifetime or what? It seemed like it took forever. All right, did it feel like you stuck it in very far or not? I don't know how far. It hurt. And that's when they get to the part in the audio when John got into the backseat and took his turn with Brandon and all that crap about whether or not he had an erection. When he got into the back seat, were you already spread out back there, ready for him, waiting on him? No, I was sitting up when he got back there. Did he play with your breasts or anything? No. Was he fingering you? Brandon's response to this was unintelligible, but he denied that this happened earlier. Sherflux continued. He said he couldn't get it in you? He said I was tight. And you've never had sex before? No. So, dreamers, it was at this point that Sheriff Lux started asking Brandon about why he runs around making girls think he's a guy. And he began mocking him when Brandon said he had no idea and that he didn't see why he had to provide an answer to that question. And it was around this time when Officer Tom Alberding came back into the room as they were speaking to Brandon and reminded him that he was not required to answer any questions. But then Brandon came up with the response about having a sexual identity crisis. So when this horrific interview was over with, Brandon signed all the paperwork and the criminal complaint against John and Tom, and it was officially filed. Sheriff Lux said that he would hand the case over to the Richardson County attorney. So Brandon left thinking that interview, that the matter would be handled quickly and his attackers would be behind bars by the end of the day. We do know that Tom and John threatened to kill Brandon if he reported what they had done to him to the police. So Brandon was afraid. Whether or not he related that to Sheriff Lux about the death threat is unknown. It's likely that he did because I'm certain he wanted this matter to be taken with a level of urgency. But we don't know because whatever else was on that recording after the parts that we have gone over were somehow erased. Whether that was accidental or by design, we also will never know. And you know, if Brandon did explain the urgency and the threats to his life, I doubt Sheriff Lux would have done anything differently. He probably wouldn't have taken it seriously. It's clear he wasn't taking Brandon seriously in this interview. Either that or he just didn't give a shit. Rhonda McKenzie, who was fast asleep at Tom Nissen's house, was awakened by the sounds of John and Tom attacking Brandon. When she came into the hallway, she did see Brandon and she could see that he was bleeding from a busted lip. The sight of all the blood and everything covering the front of Brandon's clothing startled her. Tom and John, the both of them, were still extremely intoxicated because they were drinking beers all along the way here, to a point that they were hardly able to see straight, nor were they able to stand upright. Yeah, these two, just a couple of drunk-ass, wobbly-ass dicks with limp penises. And she tried to say something about the two of them getting in trouble, that what if something happens, but they weren't listening, they all hurried out the door. These two rapists took Brandon with them once again. John was driving around kind of aimlessly and very recklessly, and Brandon had no idea where they were going or which direction they were heading. John finally ended up running the car off 
the road and getting it stuck on an embankment near an old abandoned building. All three of them tried pushing the car or looking for anything to help get the car unstuck, but they couldn't. It was so cold that night and Tom wasn't dressed for the weather either. And a couple of times Brandon offered him his coat, but because it had blood all over it, Tom opted to freeze his ass off. He wasn't exactly trying to be chummy with Brandon anymore either. They weren't friends as far as he was concerned. So yeah, even after this guy beat and raped him, Brandon was still trying to be nice, most likely to avoid being hurt any further. In fact, Tom still had intentions of beating Brandon down even more so as soon as they figured out their car situation. Tom ended up walking over to the nearest house that he could find and the homeowner came out with their pickup truck and they helped pull the car out from being stuck. But to make sure the person helping them didn't see Brandon all bloodied and beat up, John held Brandon down and ordered him to stay quiet and don't look at anyone or anything. So yeah, this is definitely a kidnapping added to their crime spree of assault and rape. This good Samaritan neighbor that they found never knew that there was a violent crime in progress when he helped these two young men with their stranded vehicle. So the drinking and the erratic, aimless driving continued for a while with occasional pit stops when John and Tom needed to pee. John nearly got them stuck again a couple of more times before he finally pulled over. Brandon asked what they were doing, but Tom and John were whispering amongst themselves and didn't say anything to him. Tom wanted to beat Brandon up and leave him there, but John told Tom that do whatever he wanted to do, but he wasn't going to. He didn't want to beat up Brandon. Tom started driving, but then pulled over again in the parking lot of a food production and packaging company. He then took a few items out of the backseat of his car and put everything in the trunk. When the backseat was clear, John placed his hand around Brandon's neck and physically forced him back there. All the while, Brandon continued to plead with them to not hurt him. But Tom, he was so angry that the more Brandon pleaded, the angrier it made him. He began punching Brandon in the side and in the abdomen and in the ribs. There are a few more quotes in Aphrodite Jones's book that she referenced that were not on the audio recording, but rather were written statements that Brandon had later made to law enforcement. And Brandon had written, I just asked them if they would quit and leave me alone. Let me go and walk. I never got a response or anything, except for John saying that he wasn't going to beat me anymore. The way they were acting, I knew it was going to happen. Tom kept grabbing my shoes, and John was sitting in the front seat, and I was begging with John, and he goes, I don't hear you. Take off your shoes, Tom ordered Brandon. Why? Just do what I tell you. Brandon started to untie his shoes when Tom then yelled, and take off all your clothes. Brandon stopped taking off his shoes and kind of froze. Tom yelled again, take them off now. But why? What are you going to do? Just shut up, Brandon, and get undressed. Please don't do this. I have asthma. I can't hardly breathe. You can either make this easy or make this difficult. I can either beat the shit out of you and get this done or not. It's going to happen either way. I was unable to fight and I was scared. He made me take my pants off and put them up front with John. Then Tom proceeded to rape me. And then when he was done, 
I asked for my pants back, and John said no. Tom got up front, and John got into the back seat and did the same thing. I was still crying, and Tom told me to shut up in a stern voice. After Brandy got dressed, Tom forced him back outside in order to punch and kick him a few more times before he said, Okay, we're all done, and no one will find out, right? Brandon quietly agreed. If anybody asks what happened, tell them that we were bumper skiing. And Dreamers, you know I had no idea what the hell bumper skiing was. You apparently squat down and grab the underside of a car or vehicle bumper and get dragged through the snow and mush. Or you lay down flat on your belly and do the same thing. This is apparently a good time, as good of a time if not better than hanging out at the gas station. Brandon's written statement continued. We went back to Tom Nissen's house and Tom and John both told me to take a shower and clean the blood off. Tom told me that I could not leave. When Tom was in his room with his wife and John was on the floor with his girlfriend, I went into the bathroom, turned on the water to make it sound like I was taking a shower. Then I busted out the screen and broke out and ran to Lana Tisdale's house and the police were called. Brandon showed up at Lana and Leslie's house around 6 a.m. on Christmas morning, and it was obvious that he had been beaten up pretty badly. He was bloodied and bruised, and he had a fat lip. Lana answered the door while Leslie apparently needed to go over to a neighbor's house in order to use the phone to call 911. An ambulance arrived a few minutes later, and Brandon was taken to the hospital, and Lana, she went with him. Brandon provided portions of his statement while waiting for the ambulance to police, and while being driven to the emergency room. Lana was also able to report to the police that she heard John Lauder ask Brandon what he would do if he raped him, and Lana told John to shut up and stop saying things like that. When Sheriff Lux was contacted about the sexual assault, he turned around and contacted the Nebraska State Police because, he's a, frankly, he's an idiot and didn't know what to do about the case. He spoke to State Investigator Tom Reinhardt, and told him first about Brandon, not the rapist, but Brandon first, that Brandon had recently been bailed out of their county jail, that he was a troublemaker and a criminal, but when they took him into custody, they thought that they were arresting a man, but soon discovered that he was a she, that her name wasn't Brandon Tina, it was Tina Brandon, and that she had filed complaints against Tom Nissen and John Lauder for sexual assault. Sheriff Lux asked Investigator Reinhardt what he should do. Yeah, dreamers, that's their sheriff out there looking into Brandon's violent kidnapping and rape, but whatever. Can't believe they'd have a cop on this thing that didn't know the first thing about investigating a rape. But I guess you just take what you can get in small town America. While the sheriff had been sitting there asking Brandon ridiculous questions, he should have been out there with his deputies and whomever the hell else he could get from the Fall City Police Department and get those two behind bars where they belonged. But no, instead, he's sitting around with this big old beer gut hanging all over the place, asking Brandon about why he's going around kissing girls. This man is just garbage, just disgusting garbage. I can't stand this guy. Investigator Reinhardt wanted to know if the hospital had taken a rape kit. Sheriff Lux... His dumbass stated that he didn't know. He told the sheriff that he needed to go speak to Brandon and get the identity of these people who attacked him and take them into custody. 
Reinhardt also asked Sheriff Lux if he was familiar with the suspects that Brandon had named as his attackers, and the sheriff said yeah, he was familiar with them. He did know them, and he stated that his deputies were actively looking for them in order to get them behind bars, which wasn't true. Reinhardt made it clear to the sheriff that they needed to speak to Brandon as soon as possible in order to ascertain as much information and evidence for the investigation, and he said once they got the two suspects into custody, that he personally would drive down from his office to assist in the interrogation or help in any other aspects of the case. Sheriff Lux, of course, his ego, bigger than his beer gut, didn't have any intentions of having anyone from the state police coming into his town, so he thanked Reinhardt for answering his questions and wished him a happy holiday. To me, investigator Reinhardt seemed extremely concerned about the sheriff's inability to conduct a proper investigation into this violent crime because he reiterated if you need any additional help if you need me down there call me back and i will be there to assist you reinhardt knew that this small town sheriff had no idea how to handle brandon's case properly and reinhardt never heard from the sheriff again pertaining to brandon's sexual assault because you know charles lux is one of those I'm the sheriff of this town type of people, you know? Real big asshole. When Brandon got to the hospital, he didn't tell anyone that he was transgender. And he had, at first, reported to the staff that he had been beaten. It wasn't until he was getting x-rays taken that the hospital staff realized that he was transgender. And it changed the manner in which they were handling his case. It turned out Brandon did not tell anyone at the hospital that he had been sexually assaulted. The x-ray technician on duty that day, another town asshole, it turned out that he had heard all of the rumors around town about Brandon being transgender, so it was the x-ray tech who went in and told the nurse to ask Brandon to disrobe completely so they could find out for sure if the rumors were true or not. So to be clear, they were not asking Brandon to disrobe because of the sexual assault, but instead, they were asking him to disrobe so they can check out whether or not the gossip was true. The nurse who was attending to Brandon that day was Lori Moore. When she asked Brandon to take off his clothing, she noticed immediately that Brandon had become very nervous and uneasy, and he was on the verge of tears. As I said, Brandon hadn't told anybody there that he had been raped, so he figured someone found out, which is why they were asking him to take off his clothing. But Nurse Lori, she was feeling as shaken and uneasy as Brandon had been because the fact was she didn't know that there had been a rape along with the beating. She was asking him to take off his clothing because of the rumors about his gender identity. Once she realized that there was a rape, she needed to do a lot more to preserve the evidence. She had to collect and bag Brandon's clothing. She needed an examination room in order for them to conduct a pelvic exam and to take swabs and the doctor needed to come back to take a second look at Brandon because the first time, the doctor examined Brandon not realizing he was transgender. All of Brandon's hospital paperwork had to be redone to reflect his gender to be female instead of male. The doctor conducted the pelvic exam and noted the trauma, swelling, and bleeding consistent with not only being sexually assaulted, but this also being the first time that Brandon had ever been penetrated. And because of the damage to the hymen that the doctor noted, he believed Brandon when he denied ever having sexual intercourse prior to the rape. 
Throughout the examination, Brandon was very hesitant and uncomfortable and had lots of difficulty cooperating. And to that, I'd say, yeah. And that may or may not have something to do with the fact that Brandon was transgender, but it also has everything to do with the fact that he was a young person being someone who has never had to go through the experience of having a pelvic exam conducted and being someone who was just brutally beaten and raped. Being trans may have been another layer, but it certainly wasn't the only layer. Brandon had every reason for this to be yet another traumatic experience and to have difficulty dealing with it because of what those two rapists had done to him. When the examination was completed, Brandon was able to finally call his sister, Tammy. He was so distraught and upset on the phone, and Tammy could barely understand anything that he was saying, but he managed to get it across that he had been beaten and raped very early that morning, and that it was Tom Nissen and John Lauder that did it. Tammy had heard those names before, but she didn't know them, and she was stunned because she thought those guys were Brandon's friends. Why would they hurt their friend like this? Tammy wanted to go and get Brandon. She knew that he was kind of stuck someplace in a small town. And remember, he had taken off to Humboldt to hide out from law enforcement that were looking for him in Lincoln. Tammy wanted to pick him up, but Brandon said that he would find a way to get home. And when they hung up, Tammy immediately called their mom and told her the news. But Joanne, she had become so upset that Tammy decided to keep many of the details about the attack to a minimum. Over the course of the next week, both Joanne and Tammy heard from Brandon sporadically. He was providing them with updates and promises that he would be there probably sometime around the 3rd or 4th of January. They got a bit more information about what had happened to him also throughout these phone calls. He expanded on the details about the attack. By this time, Brandon was staying at a motel, but he had not yet gone back to Lincoln it sounded like he was desperate to get away from Fall City and Humboldt, but there was also something that was continuing to hold him back. Joanne and Tammy could tell that Brandon was afraid, and they tried asking him why he was so anxious, what was he so scared of. And Brandon told his mom that he had been threatened to keep quiet about the rape, but he did in fact report it to the police, so he was scared. He also shared with his mom and his sister that he suspected that Lana Tisdale had something to do with helping to arrange for Tom and John to attack him. It seemed like in the days following the rape, both transportation and communication were issues when it came to getting Brandon out of the area and safely back home with his family. Tammy's car was old and unreliable, and Joanne said she would go down and get him. Lincoln was about an hour and a half away from where Brandon was at, but ultimately nobody made their way down there to pick him up, and Brandon wasn't really pushing the issue, kept insisting that he would find his own way home. Joanne was finally able to get in touch with Lisa Lambert and explained what had happened to Brandon and where he was at and asked her if she could go and pick him up, to which Lisa agreed. Lisa had a couple of other friends staying with her, and they really had a big issue with Brandon and did not want him anywhere around the house, and that's the reason why he was hesitant to go there, but Lisa assured Joanne that Brandon would be okay and she would go get him and he would be safe at her farmhouse. Joanne, after speaking to Lisa, was relieved and was able to calm down a little bit. So getting back to the police investigation into the sexual assault, Brandon had denied that he was penetrated anally, 
but both anal and vaginal swabs were taken and sperm had been found in both places. DNA would later determine that Tom Nissen was not excluded as having been the one the sperm had come from found in or on Brandon, nor was John Lauder excluded as having been the one to match the DNA of sperm recovered from a used condom found on the ground where the attack had taken place. There were actually two condoms found, but we'll talk more about that a little bit later. So we're still on Christmas Day. Later in the afternoon, state investigator Keith Hayes traveled to Fall City to look over the statements given by witnesses in Brandon's case regarding the sexual assault. All of those statements had been taken by an officer with the Fall City Police Department named Sean Nolte. He was the only officer assigned to the case. He was in charge of investigating Brandon's criminal complaint. Essentially, what happened to the status of Brandon's complaint, it was considered pending. What this meant was it was kind of just going to hang in limbo in terms of when the decision to take John and Tom into custody was going to be made, and it was something that could be held off for a period of time. Sheriff Lux decided that this wasn't something that he needed to initiate an arrest on immediately. And frankly, the guy didn't know what the hell he was doing anyway. And to me, and I'm sorry if this sounds really crude and disgusting, but to me, it sounded like from the interview with Brandon that he was getting off on prying all those sexual details out of Brandon. Maybe some of you were thinking that when I went over the interview, but I'll just come out and say it. This was pure entertainment for Sheriff Lux, in my opinion. He went ahead and turned the decision to arrest over to the county attorney. I mentioned him much earlier in the series, I believe in parts one or two, maybe both. His name was Doug Mers, and the sheriff was going to leave it up to him to get the warrants and effect the arrest. The sad fact is the sheriff had enough information and evidence to haul those two rapists in immediately based on Brandon's statement, but he chose not to. Investigator Hayes briefly questioned Lana and Linda. They were there at the police station when he got their statements to police about Brandon's attack. They were both very upset. And Brandon did suspect Lana was in on this somehow. And I believe that her mom, Linda, was partially responsible for turning to John Lauder to help in dealing with Brandon because she'd been so upset about him lying to everybody. But they were very upset. And Lana insisted that she did not set Brandon up to be raped. And I lean towards believing her. She had fought hard against her mom, pushing Brandon out of their house and out of their lives. I believe Lana loved Brandon and never wanted to see him harmed. She didn't even want to see him out in the cold, much less see him attacked and brutalized. She denied that it was her who asked Tom and John to force Brandon to take his pants off to prove his gender. They did that. She wanted to believe in Brandon, and she always stood by him and defended him. Lana told Hayes that she was staying at Tom's house with Brandon only because of Brandon being there, that her mom had kicked him out of their home and she went with him. As the Christmas Eve party was dispersing, John had asked Lana, Leslie, and Candy to go pick up his girlfriend, Rhonda. And when they did and came back, John, Tom, and Brandon were no longer at the house. In her statement, Lana stated, Shortly after that, they came walking back in the door. John wanted to talk to me. So we went into the bathroom, and he started telling me about Brandon being a girl. Then Tom came in and told me to get out, so I did for about an hour. Tom and John was in the bathroom with Brandon, and finally they let me in. John took Tom to the side and said something to him. 
Then Tom grabbed Brandon, and Don pulled Brandon's pants down to his knees and made me look to see what was there. Lana described looking on as John put his hands on Brandon's private areas. And Brandon asked that he stop touching him, but John kept trying to feel him. Later on that same evening, John grew much more agitated as he kept on drinking. And then eventually he began attacking Brandon in the living room, getting on top of him and trying to choke him out. Lana managed to pull John away and demanded that he leave Brandon alone. She told Investigator Hayes that she was not there during the time that Brandon was being beaten up by Tom and John, and by the time she did get back, it was already past midnight, it was Christmas Day, and the only two people at Tom's house were Tom's wife and John's girlfriend, Candy and Rhonda. Lana's mom, Linda, told Investigator Hayes that she heard knocking on her door sometime between 2 and 3 in the morning, stating, I answered the door, it was John Lauder and Lana. John was trying to leave, telling Lana to remain here and talk to me. She was very reluctant, and I finally said if she needed to go back to Tom's and talk to Brandon, I would take her down there. I asked her why it was so important that she needed to talk with Brandon. She said that she knew Brandon was a girl now, and after this was proven to her, she thought the best place for Brandon was to go back to jail. Rhonda McKenzie's statement to police was as follows, according to Jones's book. The only thing I heard was Brandon fall on the floor when Tom nailed her one. Tom came out of the bathroom and had Brandon by the front of the coat and they were headed outside. Tom was in front of Brandon and John was in back of her. And they left and came back a little bit later. John and Tom told Brandon to go clean up, so he did. John came to bed and woke me up and told me that he didn't do anything to him and that's all that was said. And I finally got back to sleep. John and Tom were asked to come down to the station three days later on the morning of December 28th. Investigators wanted to speak to them about the assault allegations that Brandon had made against them. Hayes brought John into his office and read him his rights, which John said that he would waive and was willing to speak to him, letting the officer know that he was aware that they had either already spoken to Tom or were in the process of doing so, and he was willing to provide his version of events. Officer Oberding was also in the room listening in on this conversation. John stated that he did not remember very much about Christmas Eve because he had spent the whole day and night drinking at the party Tom had at his place. He claimed that Lana told him what was going on with Brandon and wanted to find out the truth about Brandon's gender. He said he would if he had a chance to talk to Brandon. So when they gathered at Tom's on Christmas Eve, both he and Tom tried to get Brandon to admit to the truth about it. And he had a choice. Show them or they would find out for themselves. John claimed that Brandon voluntarily agreed to show John himself, but he wanted to do it outside and just between the two of them. But he insisted that he did not care whether Brandon was male or female. It was the other people in their circle of losers who were insisting on knowing. They first went to the garage, and John said that Brandon pulled his pants and underwear down on his own, but it was too dark in the garage for John to see anything. John went and tried to touch Brandon, but Brandon stopped him and told him that it was different because he had had surgery and it was small and he wasn't really able to get an erection yet. And he said that he did touch Brandon, but he really didn't know what he was touching because he didn't know anything about the surgical procedure that Brandon claimed to have had. So the whole thing in the garage really didn't clear things completely up. And dreamers, to me, this whole thing is so ridiculous and it makes me really upset that these people were consumed with this. 
that they were so consumed with it that they were forcing Brandon into these humiliating situations. It's such an ugly aspect of this case, and I'm sure it's difficult to listen to as we talk about it, just how awful these people were and how horribly they treated Brandon. Anyway, about 30 minutes later, Tom and Lana demanded that Brandon go with them into the bathroom and show them privately so they could get past this. A few minutes after that, John went into the bathroom to see what was going on and he noticed that there was a pair of rolled up socks on the floor. He grabbed it and saw that the sock had a streak of blood on it. He tried asking what the bloody sock was all about, but Brandon didn't answer. And while it was never really stated, I've just assumed that the blood on the sock was menstrual blood. The um, sexual assault had not occurred yet. So the ladies out there understand when you get caught by surprise with that time of the month that sometimes you have to improvise. And that's what I think what was happening here. But I don't know for sure. So investigator Hayes, while talking to John, told him that his buddy Tom confessed that it was the two of them who pulled Brandon's pants down. And they did so while Lana was in the bathroom. But John said that that wasn't true. He claimed that he did not go into the bathroom until after Brandon had already pulled his pants down. He also said that he wasn't there when Brandon was attacked, when he was kicked and punched. That was, no, he wasn't there. He didn't witness it. He said that he heard some sounds coming from the bathroom. And when he went in there, he saw that Brandon was on the floor without any clothing on and Tom was standing over him. John said he helped Brandon get up, but Tom was threatening to have Brandon arrested and thrown back into the county jail. Shortly thereafter, the three of them left together. They gave Brandon a ride to a nearby hotel so he could use a payphone. When he was done with the call, they went joyriding out on the unpaved roads. Their car got stranded. They were able to find a neighbor to help pull them out from being stuck, and they continued driving around, stopping every once in a while to go to the bathroom. But because it was dark and they were out on country roads, John wasn't exactly sure where all they had driven that night. John Lauder denied sexually assaulting Brandon, but Hayes told him that the evidence taken at the hospital proved that Brandon had been raped, but he just kind of shrugged and said he had no idea who Brandon had had sex with, but it was neither one of them. When asked about why they ordered Brandon to take a shower, he said it was because Tom had punched Brandon in the face and this caused him to get blood all over himself and his clothing, so they told him to go clean up. They noticed that the water had been running for a while, so John asked his girlfriend to go in and check on Brandon. That's when they discovered that he had climbed out the window and that was the last he had seen or heard from Brandon. John became agitated when Hayes asked him to submit to a polygraph as well as to give blood, saliva, and hair samples for analysis. But not only did John refuse all of those requests, he refused to speak to police anymore and he got up and left thinking that all the police had was his word against Brandon's. But then later on that same day, he hooked back up with Tom and that's when John found out that Tom was a stool pigeon and spilled all the beans to the police. Well, at least some version of the story. Tom definitely worked on distancing himself and implicating John, not for raping Brandon, but for having sex with him, at least that. The difference was when they interviewed Tom, they showed him some of the evidence that they had collected from his house, including the rolled up socks that had belonged to Brandon and empty beer cans and used condoms that were recovered near that food processing and packaging plant where they parked and raped him. 
Tom's story was that he did not have sex with Brandon. That was John and John alone. They said, well, how is it that there were two condoms there left at the scene? And he said, that's because John had trouble maintaining an erection. So the first one probably came off and then he had to put on a second one. But he couldn't be sure because he claimed that he was innocently sitting in the front seat all to himself, minding his own business while Brandon and John were in the back seat naked, having consensual sex. And while he denied seeing anything, he did admit that he heard Brandon say that something was hurting. But the one thing he never heard Brandon do was tell John no or stop. Tom also complied and voluntarily gave over hair, blood, and saliva. He said that he would take the polygraph and he said he was going back the next day to answer follow-up questions with the investigators. But John didn't trust Tom, even though Tom said it was his intentions to mislead police and he was in no way trying to be cooperative or throw anybody under the bus. From that point forward, John and Tom hung out at Tom's house and for the next couple of days, they quietly to themselves worked out a plan in order to try and make this problem of theirs go away. I opened this story back in part one, telling you that the tiny southeastern Nebraska town of Humboldt woke up on the morning of December 31st, 1993, to the news that a triple homicide had taken place in a small farmhouse on the outskirts of town. Officers from the Fall City Police Department, the County Sheriff's Office, and the Nebraska State Police convened at the Fall City Police Headquarters to prepare to arrest the two sexual assault suspects who had just been elevated to homicide suspects, John Lauder and Tom Nissen. While they didn't have enough evidence to bring them in on murder warrants just yet, they had more than enough to pick them up and charge them with kidnapping and rape. Remember those quote-unquote pending charges? The charges that Sheriff Locks failed to pursue? The ones that he decided to blow off until somebody else decided to do something about it, but nobody ever did? Nobody did. Nobody took care of this. And this was the consequence of that. Three young lives were violently taken. And if there were a dozen ways that this case could have been mishandled, these people, these investigators and law enforcement officials in Nebraska found one dozen and one. Those two and their limp dicks should have been in jail. And worse, what's worse, is they were both on parole at the time. So they should have been really in prison. County Attorney Greg Mertz got the warrants. Everybody was briefed at this meeting. They were given their instructions and they, along with the SWAT team, headed out to Tom Nissen's house. They cordoned off every nearby residential street to ensure nobody got in or out of the area while they made the arrest. Officers knocked on Tom's front door and it would be John who answered. He had no idea that in that moment, he was inhaling and exhaling the last free air in the world that he would ever breathe in this life. That the house he was standing in was surrounded by police, SWAT team, and the whole neighborhood had been blocked off. Officers quickly grabbed hold of John, placed him in handcuffs, and into a patrol vehicle with lead investigator on the case. If you remember, I mentioned him in, in the first part, Roger Kranz. At the same time, Tom was ordered to show his hands and come out of the house and he too was handcuffed and taken into custody. There were several other people inside the house at the time that John and Tom were arrested. Tom's wife Candy, John's girlfriend Rhonda, Tom's buddy, his name was Jason Specht, 
as well as Candy's two children, Tiffany and Bobby, and they were all transported down to the station to be interviewed individually. Investigators were hoping to get information out of them about the murders, and they had high hopes because Jason and Candy both had pretty rough relationships with Tom. Jason and Tom just a week earlier had gotten into a bar fight, and when police arrived, Jason had been beaten up and bloodied by Tom. And even though that had just had happened, Jason, if he had a grudge, he wasn't going to say anything if he had any knowledge, but he told officers that he had nothing pertinent to tell them, insisting that he knew nothing about three people being murdered. They also thought that maybe because Tom had been such an asshole of a husband to Candy that maybe she would dish on Tom in the murders, but she remained exceedingly tight-lipped about everything. And besides, talking to her this early on was pointless because she was so distraught over what was happening, they couldn't get anything useful out of her anyway. However, she did give police consent to search the home, but the only possible useful piece of evidence found was a pair of sneakers that belonged to Tom. There had been a barely visible footprint found outside the house where the murders took place, but as far as any bloody clothing, a murder weapon, things of that sort, there was nothing. They'd already disposed of the evidence. Whatever they did with it, only they know. That evening, New Year's Eve, shortly after 10 p.m., Tom Nissen admitted to what he claimed was his involvement in this triple homicide. And investigators actually didn't have to press him all that hard. He said he was there, but he claimed that it was John who shot all three of the victims. He told them everything that he had done that evening of December 30th leading up to the murders and that it was John who wanted to deal with this problem that they had had with Brandon. He also told investigators that they ditched the gun and a pair of gloves by throwing them off a bridge that crossed the Namaha River in Humboldt. So a search team was dispatched to the river and like I said, this was late at night, it was dark and they were searching the best that they could with flashlights. They knew the caliber of gun that they were looking for because of the casings that were found inside the house where the murders took place. And just before they were about to give up, a pair of officers spotted something kind of yellowish in color laying out in the middle of the river, which was frozen over at the time. These items just landed there in plain sight on top of the ice, and it was a pair of bright yellow gloves. Not that... You or I, dreamers, ever thought that Tom and John were criminal masterminds of any sort? These two, they were just plain stupid, but how genius of a move is it to use bright yellow gloves of all things to commit a crime and then ditch them out on top of a frozen river? They might as well have dropped them off at the damn police station in person and said, here you go, this has my DNA and my fingerprints all over it. You're welcome. Police managed to get out onto the ice and retrieve the gloves, and along with the gloves was a metal box that had a handgun, and along with that was a knife inside of a sheath made out of leather that had the name Lauder etched into it. Like I said, geniuses, right? And it would be on that same evening that a man named William Bennett and his wife Amy arrived at the Fall City Police Department to report that a gun had been stolen from their home. He had just seen it the morning before where he had kept it in his bedroom, but now it was gone. The only person who had come by was his friend, John Lauder. He always just let himself in, but this time he didn't stay long to hang out like he usually did. He was there for about five to 10 minutes, and he could tell that something was bothering John, 
but he didn't really think too much of it. They talked a little bit about the allegations that had been made that he had raped Brandon, and his wife Amy told him that that was an awful thing for him to have done, but he denied it happened. He said he has a girlfriend at home that if he wanted to have sex with somebody, he would have sex with her. And he certainly wasn't going to go to prison for something that he didn't do, and he assured his friends that he was going to take care of the problem. John then asked to use the bathroom, and when he was done, he said goodbye to them, and he left. I just want to point out that in Jones's book, she noted that before he left, while he was saying goodbye to his friend's wife, Amy, he fondled her breast while he was hugging her. And the only reason I wanted to share that detail with you was to let you know that this guy was really a piece of shit. Anyway, his friends could see that John was drunk, but neither one of them bothered to look outside to see who else was with him. Tom was outside in the car waiting for John. They were both anxious to deal with this problem that they had. William Bennett said that he had shown the gun to John shortly after he had purchased it, and John knew that he had it and where he stored it in his bedroom. He had just noticed that it was gone about an hour before he and his wife decided to go to the police station to file the report that it was missing because he went to go look for it after John's girlfriend Rhonda had stopped by to tell them about the police having searched their home for a gun because three girls had been shot to death in Humboldt. Tom and John were interviewed for a second time on January 2, 1994. John invoked his right to remain silent and to speak to an attorney, but Tom was still singing like a canary. They wanted to know about the knife recovered from the frozen river. Tom said that he had gone to John's house during the day on December 30th, and he saw the knife in John's car. Then the two of them drove over to the Tisdale residence and it was during that drive that John showed Tom the handgun that he had had and said that the reason they both had gloves on was because of the freezing weather. Tom had spoken to Linda and he was able to ascertain that Brandon was not there but rather staying at Lisa Lambert's house over in Humboldt. Remember, they're a half hour away in Fall City. He also found out that Philip Devine was probably there too and according to Tom, he was a little bit pissed off at Philip because he had owed him $12 from some of the card games that they had played at the Christmas Eve party, so he wanted to try and get that money from him too while he was there. Meanwhile, Tom said John had gone down into the basement and talked to Lana. She was still not coming out of there very often since she had that fight with her mom over Brandon. A few minutes later, John came back upstairs. He joked around with Leslie for a minute, and by the way, Remember how I told you that he had grabbed the breast of his friend's wife? Well, when he was here messing around with Leslie for a few minutes, Lana's sister, he bit one of her breasts. So yeah, this guy is just a menace to women everywhere. So after he assaulted Leslie, he and Tom got back into their car and left to head to Lisa Lambert's place where they learned Brandon and most likely Philip Devine were staying. And let me quickly remind you, dreamers, about how all of these pieces fell into place as John and Tom began the drive over to Lisa's. Remember, Brandon had first been staying with Lisa when he came to Humboldt with his friend Daphne, where the both of them wanted to hide out because they were getting in trouble with police and Lincoln. Brandon and Lisa hit it off really quickly early on, but soon he started spending time away from her and her infant Tanner. He was busy partying in Fall City. And that's where he met Lana, where he had approached her in that parking lot and told her how beautiful she was. 
And then he began another very fast and intense relationship with her at the same time that he had one with Lisa. And it was through Lana that Brandon had that brief bromance with John and Tom, but things began falling apart when lies Brandon had been telling and the money that he was stealing was catching up with him, causing Lana's mom to kick him out of the house. He and Lana went to go stay at Tom Nissen's house until the rape on Christmas. And when it came to Philip, he was Lana's sister's boyfriend, Leslie, but they had been arguing over his jealousy and possessiveness, and he would ultimately end up being dropped off at Lisa's with Brandon close to New Year's Eve, and that is how Brandon, Philip, and Lisa all ended up at her house the evening of the 31st. John and Tom soon left the Tisdale home. I believe they went there looking for Brandon, but we know Brandon was not welcome at their home since Linda told him to never come around her or her daughter again, and I believe they found out from someone in the Tisdale home where Brandon was, and I've read that people believe that it was Lana who pointed them in the right direction, telling them that he was at Lisa Lambert's house. That may or may not be true. I believe Lana has denied it, but at the same time, I don't know if anyone ever thought that these two intended to do Brandon any harm, any more harm, but, and this is a big but, they were the ones that Brandon turned to. It was Lana and Linda. He turned to them for help following the sexual assault. He escaped Tom's house and ran to the Tisdale house. They were the ones who called police and the ambulance for Brandon. So they knew Tom and John had a propensity for violence. I don't know who told or if they were coerced to tell or manipulated or lied to. I don't think that they went in there telling the Tisdales that they were looking for Brandon in order to shoot and stab him, but they found out where he was from someone in that house that day. I'm just not clear on who it was. However, if I had to guess, I would say it was probably Linda because she was the one that had the biggest beef with Brandon. Tom drove while John guided him through some of the back roads headed towards Lisa's house because according to Tom's statement to police, John did not want to be spotted driving around in the Humboldt area. Tom never mentioned seeing the knife being used in the murders. He insisted that he did not lay a finger on Brandon, that it was all John. He accused John of being the one who had raped him and the only one who had anything to do with the three murders. He said that he did not see John fire the first shot at Brandon, but when he went in there, he said that he did see John shoot Brandon a second time in the head and a third time under the chin. At that point, according to Tom's version of events, Lisa, who was sitting on the bed next to Brandon, holding baby Tanner, he took the baby from her, but he turned away and then he heard another gunshot, but he wasn't sure if anyone was hit. He then heard another shot, but this time when he looked, he saw Lisa Lambert with a bullet wound in her eye. He then looked on as John went into the living room to shoot Philip, and he heard a gunshot, but he didn't know if Philip was hit. But when John fired the second time at Philip, that time Tom did see the shot, and he saw that Philip had been struck by the bullet in the side of his head. He fell back and slid down off the sofa onto the floor, which is where he was found hours later with the coffee table kind of askew next to him. Tom said John was about to shoot baby Tanner also, who Tom said he was still holding, but ultimately Tom ended up putting Tanner in the crib, 
Tom also provided the investigators with a sketch of Lisa's house with X's marking the places where each victim was lying and the location of Tanner's crib inside the house. I don't believe this version of Tom's story because I think it would take the two of them to control the three people. I don't think Philip just sat there casually in the living room on the sofa waiting around while gunshots were being fired inside the bedroom and calmly waited until it was his turn to get shot. It's just ridiculous. I think one of them was controlling possibly Philip with the knife while the other one went in to do all the shooting. Regardless, to me, they're both there and they're both equally responsible. Tom did add one last detail that placed the blame firmly onto John and implicated Lana and Leslie into the killings as well. He stated that he listened to the conversation that John had had with Lana and with Leslie when they stopped by their house before going to Lisa's, and he said that he heard Lana indicate that she wanted Brandon to be taken care of, or words to that effect, and that he heard Leslie say that she was over Philip and never wanted to see him again or have anything to do with him. But he didn't think anything of those statements at the time. All he was aware of is that they were headed to Humboldt because John claimed that he was intending to threaten Brandon in order to get him to recant his statement to police that they had sexually assaulted him. While word spread pretty quickly that there was a triple murder that had occurred in Humboldt, Brandon's mom and sister hadn't heard about it until later on that evening while they were watching the news on TV. While the names of the victims still had not been released to the media, both Joanne and Tammy had that sinking feeling that Brandon was among the dead. They had been hearing from him sporadically in the week between Christmas and New Year's Eve, but they had not been able to get a hold of him the entire night before or the day of the 31st of December. They knew about the rape. They knew that he had gone to police. They knew that he had named John and Tom as his attackers and they knew that they had threatened his life if he did report it. It's not like we're talking about a big town here and triple murders don't happen every day. Even cities much bigger than that, triple murders don't happen every day. The last time Joanne ever spoke to Brandon was on December 30th at around a quarter to seven that evening. So just about six to seven hours before John and Tom left the Tisdales home to pay him, Lisa, and Philip that visit. Brandon told his mom that he had had an appointment with Sheriff Lux to discuss some of the evidence that was recovered from Tom Nissen's home related to the night of the sexual assault and kidnapping. But when he got close to the sheriff's office, he spotted Tom and John in their car parked across the street. He didn't want them seeing him going into the sheriff's department, so he didn't go. Joanne understood, but then she pleaded with Brandon to come back to her home. He promised that he would be there in just four days. He assured his mom that he would be okay. Just hang in there and he would come home soon. Joanne didn't get to see him on Christmas. She didn't get to see him for New Year's. And she wouldn't ever get to see him again. About a half hour after Brandon spoke to his mom on December 30th, he had also spoken to his sister Tammy twice. He told her that he was really struggling and he was having a hard time finding a place to stay. Nobody wanted him around. He wasn't welcome at the Tisdales. He wasn't welcome at Lisa's. 
And even though she had said that he could stay there, her other roommates were getting really upset that he was there and wanted him gone. And he wasn't sure what he was going to do or where he was going to go next. The call that Brandon made to his sister for the second time that night was around midnight. This is the account of that conversation as detailed in Jones's book. With the exception of the names and pronouns used in referencing Brandon, I changed those to he and him instead of she and her. It was a desperate cry for help. Brandon was scared. He wanted Tammy to come get him right away. Tammy could hear the fright in his voice, but Brandon had been asking Tammy to drive down for days, always changing his mind. He had cried wolf. Now Tammy wasn't about to get into her junky old car in the middle of the night and try to find her way to some farm road in Humboldt. As they spoke, Tammy could hear the TV playing in the background, and Brandon seemed to calm down when she asked him what he and Lisa were watching on the tube. Finally, Tammy ended the conversation, telling him that she had to go to bed and she would talk to him the next day when she got off of work. They spoke for about 10 minutes which was an expensive collect call for Tammy. I'll try to get down there tomorrow, Tammy told him, hurrying off the phone. Brandon, disappointed, said, okay, well, I better let you go. And that would be her last conversation with Brandon. Law enforcement eventually made their way over to both Brandon and Philip's mother's homes to deliver notifications of their deaths in person. Of course, if you can recall back in part one, I told you that Lisa Lambert's mom was the one that discovered the crime scene. So, no death notification necessary. Baby Tanner was placed in the care of her sister, Lisa's aunt. Because the murders involved the death of a transgender person, the case attracted a great deal of media attention in the states of Nebraska and Iowa. And Brandon's mom was particularly hounded by reporters because it was her child who was the transgender person everyone was interested in. The media were actually pretty relentless. And you know, at the time, news didn't travel quite as fast as it does now since everybody is so well connected. And journalists still chase stories and people today, but back then, you really had to get news firsthand and then see it on the TV in order to get it in a timely manner. Journalists had even rummaged through Joanne's trash cans when they were put out for collection just to see if they could find anything at all because she was not speaking to anybody in the media, at least in the beginning. Brandon was being cast as a transvestite or a cross-dressing hate crime victim. And the other unfortunate side effect of that was Lisa and Philip were little more than footnotes in the story, cast as unfortunate collateral damage for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I can't stand it when... Things like that are said, wrong place, wrong time, because they had every right to be where they were when they were. It was just this perfect storm that brought the three victims and the two murderers together that night, which is why I really wanted to trace each one of their lives for you so we could see just how everybody's worlds intersected. The most astonishing thing for me is how incredibly short the amount of time it was that Brandon, Lisa, Philip, John, and Tom all knew each other for something to have escalated this quickly to homicide. The day after the murders, county attorney Doug Mers, he had a press conference where he stated Brandon was a woman posing as a man, 
but there was nothing to indicate that his gender identity had anything to do with the crimes. He mentioned that a week earlier, Brandon had filed a criminal complaint regarding a sexual assault, but at the time of the press conference, he had few details about that and did not say if the sexual assault and the murders were related. But the community had already formed their opinion and they believed that they were absolutely related. Then Mertz proceeded to blame the appointment that Brandon failed to show up for. Remember, he had missed a couple of days earlier. They were supposed to go and discuss evidence recovered from Tom's house after the sexual assault as being the reason why nobody was in custody for the crime. That's what he said. It was Brandon's fault that nobody was in custody because he missed that appointment. Remember, Brandon told his mom that he didn't show up for that appointment because his attackers were sitting in the car across the street from the sheriff's department, and he was afraid to go in. They were working the case, and Brandon's failure to show up was part of the reason why the case was still pending, and Mertz also stated that when it came to the sexual assault, that this was still a their-word-against-his-word type of a case. But the media was quick to pick up on the fact that it seemed like law enforcement had mishandled Brandon's sexual assault case, which allowed for two very, very violent criminals to be walking the streets, free to escalate their crimes. Law enforcement failed to protect Brandon Tina. Joanne eventually provided some statements to the media, and she insisted that the murders were motivated by hate, by John and Tom's transphobia and or homophobia. She told the media how Sheriff Lux treated Brandon when he was being questioned about the rape and how he asked him questions about his gender and sexual identity and that had nothing to do with the fact that these two men kidnapped, beat, and raped him and that they should have been arrested Christmas Day, but the system failed him and two of his friends. And by the way, one newspaper based in Lincoln quoted Sheriff Charles Lux as having referred to Brandon as it. Joanne told a journalist from that same newspaper the following statement. He didn't deserve to get beat up. He didn't deserve to get raped. He didn't deserve to be ignored by the sheriff, and he didn't deserve to die. However, Joanne did refer to Brandon as she. And by the way, while people from the area were still shocked that a crime like these, both the rape and murders, could have happened in a town like theirs where things like this just don't happen, but at the same time, those same individuals who were stunned by all of this were not stunned at all to find out that John Lauder and Tom Nissen were the ones suspected of being involved because that's what they did their whole lives, both of them, caused trouble. In the wake of the killings, Brandon Tina became a national symbol for the LBGTQ plus community, and that community pushed for the state of Nebraska to acknowledge the murders as a hate crime. Brandon Tina had sparked a conversation that people hadn't had before and brought about a term that many people hadn't even heard before, transgender. And no matter what anybody else would call him or say about him, he would officially be Brandon Tina as far as they were concerned. However, Brandon's mom started a fundraiser to collect money to buy Brandon a headstone, and many of the activists and allies wanted to help out and donate but most of them refused because she intended to have the name Tina Brandon engraved on it, along with daughter, sister, and friend. So John's girlfriend, Rhonda, was questioned by investigators after he and Tom were taken into custody on December 31st. She provided her account of what happened that evening leading up to the murders. She said she tried staying awake until John came home but ended up falling asleep. 
She woke up when they finally arrived back home sometime around 3.30 that morning, and it was then she was told by John that if anybody asked, she was to lie and say that he was home by 1 a.m. When she asked why and what was going on, he told her to not worry about it. She was too tired to really care, and she ended up laying back down. She stared at the clock on their VCR. It read 3.35 a.m. as she dozed back off to sleep. When the investigator spoke to Tom's wife, Candy, she stuck by the alibi that she was told to provide, that Tom and John arrived home at 1 a.m. She would eventually change her story after several more conversations with law enforcement. The second time that they had spoken to her, Candy had already moved back home with her family, and when she did, she took some articles of clothing that police failed to collect during the initial search of their house, including the shirt and jacket that Tom was wearing the night of the murders. Fortunately, Candy still had those items, and even though there was no obligation to give those items over to police, she did the next time that she sat down and talked to them. She handed it over willingly. She also gave a correct account of what happened that evening. I already talked about all of this in part one, that around one in the morning, Tom said that he and John were going to take care of something, but she didn't know what they were talking about. And then they came back home around three in the morning. And that's when she heard the knocking on the back door and she had to get out of bed. Candy then helped Tom pour bleach on his hands, but it was too dark for her to see if there was anything like blood on him. When investigators spoke to Lana, she recounted the events of the day leading up to the sexual assault on December 25th. She had been at that party at Tom's, but he and John ended up giving her a ride home. And the next thing that happened was that Brandon was knocking on her front door some hours later around 6 in the morning after he had been beaten and raped and managed to escape. A couple of days later, Lana had been a bit under the weather, so it was around the 29th of December that Brandon snuck in to visit her and ended up staying the night that evening. He was hiding out from Tom and John, so he was worried about anyone knowing where he was at. There were also a couple of accounts of people having overheard John Lauder say that he wanted to kill Brandon. Linda said that her daughter, Lana, told her that John wanted somebody dead, or he wanted to kill somebody, but they didn't think that he was serious. Lana claimed later that it was her sister Leslie who heard John say that he wanted to kill somebody. So now we've got some inconsistencies going on here and there will be more. There's probably a lot more that I'm going to have time to bring up here in this case. The next time Lana saw John was after they had stopped by her place before going to where the murders would end up happening. He had come by later that same day in the middle of the day to bring over some things that belonged to Brandon. Even though the murders had just taken place less than 12 hours earlier, Lana did not note anything unusual about John's demeanor. Towards the end of March of 1994, the investigation into John and Tom was wrapping up. They had talked to everybody at least twice. They went through Tom and John's belongings with a fine-tooth comb. The case was solid and they were ready to move forward into the next stages of getting these guys to trial when a thing happened. As Tom was being transported from where he was being housed in Lincoln back down to Fall City for his court hearings, he randomly stated to the officers transporting him that, quote, she was in the car. She went up to the front door and knocked on it, but nobody answered, so she came back to the car. And after she came back, he and Lauder went to the door and kicked it in. 
Officer Oberding, one of the two officers transporting him, was so surprised by the statement because they had not heard this before. They had no idea that there was potentially somebody else in the car with them the night of the murders. And that he asked a follow-up question without reminding Tom of his Miranda rights, asking if she went to the house with them. Tom stated that she stayed in the car while they were inside. Oberding told Tom that he was going to have to make a report about this new voluntary statement that he was making, but Tom asked him if he could hold off. He wanted to try and broker a deal for himself, and while Officer Oberding said that he would hold off, he didn't. He filed the report the minute he got back to his desk, and when he did, the prosecutor's office went crazy. They wanted to speak to her immediately, and that her would be Lana Tisdale herself. Ultimately, nothing would ever come of this, and they just chalked it up to another one of Tom Nissen's lies. That same month, the end of March, Lana and Leslie and their mom Linda, along with John Lauder's sister Michelle, they all flew to New York City to be guests on the Maury Povich show. A couple of other friends of theirs that Brandon knew, Daphne Gugat and Lindsay Klassen, also went to New York. It didn't seem like it was that difficult for them to be talked into coming onto the show to dish on the case. Brandon's sister and mom were also invited, and at first they had agreed to go but decided at the last minute not to because they believed they deserved to be on a much bigger, more well-respected and reputable show than Maury Povich or any other daytime talk gossipy show. And I totally agree that they made the right choice, not only because Maury's TV show was kind of trashy and exploitative, but also because I don't think Brandon's family knew that the Tisdells and John's sister were going to be on and it probably would not have gone well at all. Brandon's family had already had it out with the Tisdells at Brandon's funeral services, and it got pretty ugly, and it didn't end there. The fight continued on after the funeral and ended up at a nearby Taco Bell, where a screaming match ensued inside the restaurant's restroom. The more Joanne and Tammy learned of the circumstances surrounding Brandon, Lisa, and Philip's murders, the more they believed that Lana Tisdell was responsible on some level for what ended up happening to the three of them. What's more, Brandon's family believed that Lana was the driving force behind both the sexual assault and the murders, and they were beside themselves with frustration, anger, and grief that she was going to skate free. When Lana appeared on the Maury Povich show, she apparently came across looking like a celebrity, hitting the big city, enjoying all the glitz and glamour and attention. The show described Brandon as a person who was posing as a man and wound up murdered because of it. Clips of Lana telling a reporter that Brandon was a true gentleman and one of the best people she's ever known in her life were played. Now, I know Lana fell pretty hard and fast for Brandon, but when you take away all the other stuff surrounding the story, it's important to remember that when Brandon began staying at Lana's home, she had only known him for one day. When he was sexually assaulted, she had known him for 12 days. And then when he was murdered, she had known him all of 19 days. And he ranks among one of the best people she's ever known in her life. 19 days? Is that even a genuine assessment? Maybe it is. I lean towards no, but that's what she said on TV. And what? Her mom had to say, Lana's mom, Linda, to Maury Povich, was even more cringe. Get this, okay? She said 
This is Linda. She said that she was very happy and proud and very much approved of her daughter's relationship with Brandon, that he was a very sweet and polite young man. He always gave Lana flowers, tokens of his affections, small gifts, everything that she wanted. At which point Lana chimed in stating that Brandon was very much like a man. He talked like a man, looked like a man, acted like a man, all of his actions, his mannerisms, everything you know what a man is and does, Brandon was that through and through. And then she referred to him as her boyfriend. We know damn well that what Lana's mom said on Maury Povich about approving of Brandon being Lana's boyfriend is categorically false. She was disgusted by the fact that he was transgender. She was angered with all of the lies that he went around telling people, the stealing that he was doing from friends and family. She hated Brandon and she made it clear that he was not welcome to come anywhere near her daughter or her home ever again. And she kicked him out of the house, at which point Lana joined him and they went to go stay at Tom Nissen's place. Lana told Maury Povich that the only intimacy between her and Brandon was kissing, and we know that that's a lie. In reference to demanding Brandon to pull down his pants to prove his gender, she claimed that she covered her eyes and didn't look when it happened. We know that that's a lie too. And then Linda stated that the night of the sexual assault that she and Lana were at Tom Nissen's house until 5.30 that morning before going home. And that statement is also a lie based on the information that they gave in their earlier statements to police. They said that the morning of the sexual assault on Christmas Day, that they were all awakened by the sound of knocking at their front door around 6 in the morning, and it was Brandon who had just escaped out the bathroom window of Tom's house and ran to their place seeking refuge and help. So they would have had to have left Tom's house, arrived home, gotten into bed, and fallen into a deep enough sleep to have been unexpectedly awakened by Brandon's knocking at the front door. They were shocked seeing him all bloodied and bruised. They would have still been at Tom's house when he and John arrived back home with Brandon before ordering him to take a shower. It doesn't make any sense that they were still there until 5.30 and then suddenly appeared at their own house in time to go to bed and answer the door. I don't know how far apart Tom's house is from the Tisdells, but the window of time, I believe, is uh, just a bit too narrow. So to me... It's a lie. Also, I was under the impression that Linda wasn't at the party. She didn't want to be around Brandon, but she could have gone there or was brought there once Tom and John left with Brandon. That seems to be what had happened, but they weren't there. They didn't tell police they were there till 530. They had gone home much earlier than that. I don't know. But what is important is just remembering that the truth never changes. So while I still think Lana did care for Brandon and wouldn't want him harmed, I know that her mom hated him. And to me, she would be the one to have all the reasons in the world to lie. I can't say for sure, but I will tell you what Jones wrote in her book about this. The logical explanation is that Tom and John were watching the house and seeing Linda's car there. They waited for Linda to pull away before entering with Brandon. If Linda left at 530, and the shower scene only took a few minutes, it fits that Brandon would show up at the Tisdales in the 6 o'clock time zone. But that's not how Joanne and Tammy saw it. Once the show aired, they and their attorneys became even more convinced that the Tisdales had been in on the murders and sexual assault all along. 
And remember, dreamers, earlier in this episode, I told you that Lana and Leslie had already left the Christmas Eve party to go open presents with their mom. And they were taken over there by Tom and John and dropped off. And one of the stops that Tom and John made while they were forcing Brandon to go joy riding around with them was at the Tisdale's home. And they stopped in there to tell Linda that they had confirmed that Brandon was female. And after they talked, they went on their way and ended up driving around, getting stuck, and later parking at the food processing plant and raping him there. Then they went home and made him take a shower. And it just doesn't make sense that Lana and Linda would end up back at Tom's house again in those very early morning hours after they had already partied there all night and gone home. I doubt that after they opened their presents that they were like, oh, let's go back to Tom's house and hang out some more for a little bit and then go back home again. I just don't think that happened. I don't think it makes any sense. In their segment on the Maury Povich show, Linda also said, get this, okay? She said that Brandon didn't want to call police about the sexual assault, that he didn't want to report it. And when she talked about him on Maury Povich, she used male pronouns in referencing Brandon for the first time, whereas before she used female pronouns. And it was she, according to Linda, who convinced Brandon that the right thing to do was to make the police report that he had the right to be safe and to be protected and he needed to turn them in. Now, dreamers, I don't know if that's true or not. If Brandon did not want to call the police, I don't think that there was any amount of convincing that would get him to do it. He was a very, very stubborn person. And it didn't seem like he was the type of person that wanted to subject himself to that. I think he went to the police because he wanted to. And even after Tom and John issued the death threat, he stuck with it, figuring that he would be able to hide out at Lisa's until he got home to his mom's place or John and Tom would be arrested. However, if Linda knew Brandon was under threat to not report the rape, she may have encouraged him to go ahead and report it, hoping that Tom and John were not bluffing and that Brandon would get what was coming to him. Linda did admit to Maury that she did kick Brandon out of the house and perhaps he would still be alive if she hadn't done that. Everybody else, and by everybody else on the show, I mean Leslie, Daphne, and Lindsay, they spoke too, but they were really there to show off their new clothes and their hairdos for the nationwide television debut. They were asked stupid questions by the audience, like, what was it like kissing Brandon? Couldn't you tell that he was a female? I mean, I tried looking for the video dreamers and I couldn't find it, and I haven't fully watched any of the short documentaries on YouTube on this case just yet, so there might be some clips out there but I just couldn't find the whole segment of the show. And by the way, the cases against John and Tom almost got tossed out because they were technically arrested on December 31st, 1993, about 45 minutes before their warrants were signed off by a judge. The police jumped the gun and took them into custody, fearing that they were a flight risk. And remember, the warrants were for the kidnapping and rape, not the murders. They didn't have the probable cause for the murders just yet, though they did have probable cause for the rape. They had the probable cause for the rape for the last week, but never acted on it. The defense attorneys for John and Tom argued fiercely that the police had the same amount of probable cause to arrest Tom and John the day after the rape as they did a week later, but they failed to act on it. I did state earlier that they did get arrest warrants, and we were led to believe that was the case, 
because they usually need a warrant to arrest somebody. But yeah, they got them in handcuffs a full 45 minutes before the warrant was signed. Ultimately, the judge did not toss out the case or any of the evidence. All of it was admissible. They didn't have search warrants either. I did ask the host of the Defense Diaries, Bob Mata, about this since he's a defense attorney. And he said, yeah, if the suspects are considered to be extremely dangerous, that if there is a real fear that they could potentially do more harm, and if they are considered a flight risk, they can do the arrest before the warrant is signed. Oh, and while all these ladies were making their small screen debut on the Maury Povich show, Tom Nissen decided to get in on the media action and gave his first interview to Playboy magazine. I found an archived version of the article, and like everything else in this case, it's cringe. It got several of the facts wrong, including Brandon's date of birth and the position that his body was in when he was discovered shot to death. And the title of the article was Death of a Deceiver. Because Brandon deceiving people about his gender identity was the biggest issue in this whole case, right? Death of a Deceiver. God, that's such bullshit. And much of the article centered on Brandon and his sex life. I mean, this is Playboy after all, and I guess there are some of you out there who read the magazine for the articles, but this one, skip it. It's just garbage. Tom Nissen's trial began in February of 1995, and soon the small town of Falls City was inundated with media people, journalists, reporters, camera people, photographers, radio stations, at least two documentary crews, Hollywood producers, and authors. Hotels were all booked up. The influx of human beings into the small town was unlike anything these folks had ever seen before. And it was all because of the sensationalism surrounding the fact that one of the victims of this murder, this triple murder, was transgender. It did bode well for all of the local small businesses and mom and pop stores out there, so there's that. The courtroom was packed. Every seat was taken. But in none of those seats were any people to support Tom. His mom and dad didn't show up, and neither did his soon-to-be ex-wife Candy, not just yet anyway. She finally did something right for the first time ever and filed for divorce, which is something Tom did not want. By then, Candy had had her third child, and this also may or may not have been Tom's. I don't think Candy cared if her kids knew who their dad was or not. After Tom went to jail for Brandon's murder, Candy ended up sleeping with Tom's brother, and then she started a new relationship with some other guy, and she did everything that she could to dump her three children onto anybody else who'd be willing to take them. She would eventually lose custody of her children to Child Protective Services twice. What their fate ended up being, I have no idea. Tom was desperate to stay married while he was in jail, but Candy wouldn't be the one. And I don't even know why I'm talking about this because it really doesn't matter. She did testify against him, and it was the only time that Tom shed maybe a tear or two was when she got onto the stand and spoke against him. Tom's jury deliberated his fate for two and a half days, and it was the longest two and a half days ever for courtroom watchers. His parents did make the drive up from Mississippi for the verdict and visited with Tom whenever he was given the chance. There was a new sheriff in town, as by the time the trial began, Sheriff Shithead Charles Lux was voted out 
Investigator Keith Hayes was the new sheriff. If you remember him, he was the one that interrogated all of the witnesses, and he had actually had a personal connection to the murders. Lisa Lambert was his niece. Despite that, he was very, very nice and compassionate towards Tom's parents and allowed them special visits and privileges that other inmates did not get. He felt bad for them. And to me, I think part of that may have been because Tom was arguing with John at the scene of the murders about whether or not to kill baby Tanner. Perhaps the sheriff was grateful for that and that they didn't kill his niece's son. And this was his roundabout way of expressing that gratitude. The jury ultimately found Tom guilty of first-degree murder for Brandon's death and two counts of second-degree murder for the murders of Lisa and Philip. Everybody was upset with the jury's decision, feeling as though he should have had three first-degree murder convictions. It made Lisa's family and Philip's family feel as though their lives weren't as important or worthy as Brandon's. But we know how the jury was looking at this. You and I, us all listening to this, uh, true crime experts here, armchair detectives that we all are. When they were given the instructions about how to deliberate each of the verdicts, they were guided by that. It was clear that John and Tom had gone over to Lisa Lambert's house with the intentions of harming Brandon. But the question is, did they intend to kill the other two victims? Was that part of their plan? Likely not, but the argument can be made that intent only takes a few seconds to form. Either way, I get why the families felt the way that they did, but I think it was the best way to go since the jury was struggling with it. It was better than acquitting him, and perhaps it would lessen the possibility of Tom winning any appeals in the future. He was looking at either the death penalty or life in prison without the possibility of parole. Members of the jury later stated that the death penalty hanging over the case made it very, very difficult for them to want to convict him. But ultimately, they got the unanimous decision because it was the right one. The day that Tom was convicted, the O.J. Simpson trial was in full swing here in California. Well, there in California, I'm in Nevada, technically. Which is probably why I, living in Southern California at the time, heard little to nothing about this case. John Lauder went on trial three months after Tom in May of 1995. The prosecution presented their case first, and just as they were about to finish up, they got word that Tom Nissen wanted to cut a deal. Take the death penalty off the table and he would testify on behalf of the state against John. While he didn't want to snitch on him, he felt like it was his only option because John's defense would be that Tom did it all. There was no physical evidence linking John to the crime scene, no fingerprints, no DNA, nothing. Tom thought the possibility of John getting off scot-free was very real, and he was facing the death penalty anyway, so he decided to roll over on him. He told the court that it was John who shot and killed everybody in the house. He also admitted that he was, in fact, getting a deal for his testimony, and the deal was three life sentences and that he would be moved to a prison outside of Nebraska because John was threatening to kill him or have him killed for testifying. Also, nothing that Tom would say in court would ever be used against him. Tom said that they came up with a plot together to murder Brandon, that they began formulating it on December 26th. They spent several days in the city of Lincoln surveilling several houses and addresses to try and see if they could find Brandon there in his hometown. 
The plan was to grab Brandon, force him into their vehicle, take him to some remote location, and cut his head and hands off. And that they brought some rope, an axe, and fresh clothing to change into once they mutilated Brandon's body. Their plan started picking up steam, and they became more focused on killing Brandon after they were interviewed by police about the sexual assault. After that, it was no longer a question of whether or not they were going to kill him, but rather when they were going to get it done. Tom also gave the courtroom a minute-by-minute, step-by-step, play-by-play of how each of the murders occurred. It was violent, and it was horrifying to listen to. So against his attorney's advice, wishes, and pleas, John Lauder decided to take the stand in his own defense. And his strategy would be to deny, deny, deny. He stated that he had nothing to do with the planning of Brandon's murder, that he did not shoot Brandon, he did not shoot Lisa, he did not shoot Philip. He said that Tom was lying, Tom was the killer, and he was an innocent man sitting in jail facing the possibility of the death penalty for crimes that he did not commit. John said that he was a victim, a victim of Tom's deceit. He denied stealing the murder weapon from his buddy's house. It was Tom that went in and stole the gun, he claimed. He denied ever telling anyone that he wanted to kill somebody. He denied he asked his girlfriend to provide him with an alibi for the night of the murders. He denied ever leaving the house at any time late into the night of December 30th into the morning of the 31st. He said he was at Tom Nissen's house the entire time. He denied ever being at the scene of the crime. He denied ever being in Lisa Lambert's home. He denied being anywhere near Humboldt. He denied having any conversations with Tom about killing Brandon. And he denied going to Lincoln to search for Brandon with Tom at any time in the days between the rape and the murders. But the prosecution was able to discredit his testimony by entering one simple piece of evidence. It was a pawn slip that showed John had pawned about a dozen CDs in the city of Lincoln on December 27th. So John had to admit on the stand that he was in Lincoln on the day that Tom testified that they were searching for Brandon. When John's testimony was finished, while he was being escorted back into the holding cell, he shouted out in the courtroom that Tom Nissen was an effing little liar and that he should go to the electric chair. Two days later, after about five hours of deliberations, the jury convicted John of three counts of first-degree murder with the special circumstance of using a weapon to commit a felony, and he was convicted also of burglary. In the penalty phase of John's trial, after hearing a variety of witnesses, friends and family of John's, and mental health experts, the three-judge panel sentenced John Lauder to death. They actually really had no choice because they were bound by the case law. Never in the history of the state of Nebraska had anyone received less than death when convicted of a triple murder. It seemed kind of stupid to me for his attorneys to present all of these mental health experts to discuss all of the problems that John had throughout his childhood, his rough upbringing, all that junk that I talked about earlier in this series, when the bottom line was John's defense was he didn't do it. Having all of these experts say stuff like, Oh, John didn't know what he was doing when he was committing the murders, that he was manipulated and he was selfish and he was unreliable and a nonconformist who likes to blame other people and refuses to accept the consequences of his actions. I mean, come on. Your attorneys are basically letting the 
panel of judges know like, hey, John lied and we lied all throughout the trial. Tom received his three consecutive life sentences per his agreement with the state of Nebraska. In 2007, Tom recanted the testimony that he gave in John's trial and claimed that he was the one who shot all three victims. Two years later, John used this recantation in an appeal, asserting that he was innocent. The Nebraska Supreme Court denied his appeal. His new story still had the both of them at the scene of the crime, and that essentially made both of them guilty of murder, no matter who pulled the trigger. And all of their appeals since then, up to the present day, have been denied. John Lauder and Tom Nissen were a pair of menaces to society for the majority of their lives leading up to the murders of Brandon, Lisa, and Philip. When they arrived back home after the murders, Tom told his wife that their problems were over. We all know what he meant. These two rapists and murderers deliberated and premeditated their crimes. They planned it. They designed it. They carried it out in an act of violence that was so malicious and so cold-blooded. They were angry at Brandon Tina because they were disgusted by the fact that he was a transgender person. Somewhere, somehow, these two lost sight of the fact that he was simply just a person. Brandon was also, ironically, very much like them. They all had problems. They had messed up family lives. They were lost and confused young people. But John and Tom were incapable of relating to Brandon on that very real and human level because they were blinded by their own rage and their own hatred. They were so disgusted, yet they were the ones who committed the most disgusting acts. They beat Brandon together. They kidnapped him together. They raped him together. And then they killed him together, along with two other innocent people in order to eliminate witnesses to their crimes. This is how their transphobia manifested itself, into homicidal rage. On Christmas Day, while those around the world celebrated one of the biggest holidays, a day that's supposed to bring you joy and peace, these two rapists and murderers were consumed and obsessed with forcing Brandon to pull down his pants and expose himself to prove what was Brandon's own personal business. They had no right to do that to him. Nobody has any right to do that to anybody ever. On Christmas Day, at a Christmas party, that's how depraved and vile these two are. They got off on humiliating Brandon just because they didn't agree with the way that he lived his life. Last I checked, this is a free fucking country. They did not have the right, no right to touch him or lay one single finger on him. They had no right to touch a hair on his head. Before John and Tom headed out to murder Brandon, Tom ordered his wife to make him a sandwich because he needed his energy, as do most murderers, I suppose, as they prepare to commit an act of homicide. Good thing he had a full belly because he ended up committing three homicides. For days, these two rapists and murderers hunted Brandon down. He was in hiding because he took their threat seriously. Brandon feared for his life. He was deathly afraid. 
as he very well should have been. They had kidnapped him, they had beaten him, they had raped him. And then Brandon ratted them out to the police. In their minds, Brandon had to die. They hunted him until they cornered him in that tiny farmhouse on the outskirts of Humboldt. And they could not have picked a town with a more incompetent, useless, disgusting, perverted sheriff in Charles Lux. Because this officer of the law decided to not arrest these rapists immediately after Brandon filed his complaint against them, it was a slap in the face. Charles Lux, to me, was an accomplice more than a sheriff's deputy. Yeah, he was an accomplice to the rape and an accomplice to the murders. And that has been proven to all of us. When the community that he served spoke and tossed his ass out of office when the next election came around. Nobody wants a man in elected office who protects rapists, especially when that office is in law enforcement. That could be anybody's child, somebody's daughter, sister, mother. Charles Lux protected and served all right. He just protected and served the wrong people. He protected and served rapists, kidnappers, brutal, vicious individuals who were free to escalate their lifelong crime sprees to the level of homicide, all with Charles Lux's help. When these two rapists and murderers forced their way into Lisa Lambert's home, they violently kicked in that front door. What does that tell you about the state of mind of these two individuals? We already knew because seven days earlier, they beat and raped Brandon. They drove around, they drank beers, they yucked it up, and then when they were finished brutalizing Brandon that night, they tried to make sure that they were still friends. They terrorized Brandon literally for the final seven days of his life. It didn't end when Brandon managed to escape from them through that bathroom window. No. Brandon went into hiding because he knew that they would kill him if they found him. He took that threat seriously, and it sounds like he was the only one who did. Maybe Brandon lived his life on the edge. His actions were questionable. He stole from his friends. He struggled with so much more than being just a transgender person trying to figure life out. In the end, Brandon Tina died in a state of complete terror, and he never, ever deserved that. All I can hope for is that it was quick for him, Lisa, and Philip. Let's not forget the struggles Philip had. The minute that he entered into this world, he was premature. He had birth defects, a missing leg, severe lung issues and doctors were fairly certain that Philip would not survive to see the age of one. But he made it, and he thrived. And he would have kept making it and thriving if not for these two rapists and murderers. How damn sad to survive against all odds at birth, only to be taken out by a couple of disgusting individuals for absolutely no reason at all. And then Lisa holding her baby in her arms as she watched Brandon be shot in the head repeatedly right in front of her, and then to have to sit there 
while these two took her baby from her right before she met the same fate as Brandon. Shot in the head. One of the shots directly into her eye and out the back of her head. And she died not knowing whether or not they murdered her baby as well. And remember, Philip was in the living room listening as two people were being murdered in the next room over. And you know that he had to know that he was next. And he was. He was shot two times. Once in the head and once in the neck. He knew it was coming. And it had to have been absolutely terrifying. Tom Nissen and John Lauder had no right. They just had no right. And it angers me that they were so prejudiced and entitled to think that they did. Brandon could have hidden his true self and lived a safe life. But he had the strength and the desire, all by himself and all alone, to be who he felt that he was. He really did do it all alone. And I found that throughout his life, very few people accepted him. And that included, to an extent, his own mother. And even fewer people stood by him. And that's what's even more sad. Sitting here almost 29 years later, and it's likely Brandon would still be in a world where he would likely have to live a life alone and in fear. Harvey Milk once said, If a bullet should enter my brain, then let that bullet destroy every single closet door in this country. Harvey Milk did end up with five bullets in him. Two of them into his brain. But those closet doors are still closed all over the place. And the violence against transgender and gender non-conforming people is still a huge problem in 2022. It's not getting any better. As the numbers of murdered trans and gender non-conforming individuals stands at 19 so far this year, and that's simply unacceptable. Not only is it time for the closet doors to come down, it's time for people to be allowed to live their lives the way they want to live it on their terms without the fear that they might get a bullet in the brain because people are incapable of seeing past their own ignorance and prejudice and to just do what I've been saying that the people in this story should have been doing all along. Mind their own business. Don't concern yourself with other people and what they do or how they live. Just mind your own damn business. Thank you for listening. I'm sorry if these episodes were upsetting. I know that this was a truly dreadful story, but still a story worth telling, a story worth remembering. Until next time, sweet dreams, and please love one another. And if you can't, then just mind your own damn business. <laughs>